looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 476, podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. But today we're going to be talking about rum, sodomy, and the lash in the context <laughs> of three movies uh, based on the famous story, Mutiny on the Bounty, which has been two books and multiple movies. We're going to be talking about the three best, but it's kind of a momentous occasion because this is Bill Scurry's last podcast in the flesh before he becomes a Western European moving to Amsterdam in a matter of weeks. So Bill Days. Scurry, yeah. yeah, it's a, it is an honor and it is a privilege to have you back on Wrong Reel to bask in your glory one I'm final time. I'm so happy to be here. It is like not being able to do this regularly in the flesh if this kind of turns into a Skype thing uh, on the regular. I mean, we're going to come back to New York, I think like on an every six month uh, uh you know, rotation for a couple of weeks. We're not totally gone, but um, yeah, this is a big deal. I've, I've loved being on this show, and so this is definitely not the last appearance in the flesh for sure, but maybe for a couple of months it will be. Well, tonight, just so people know that we are actually going out for a big steak dinner like men with uh, Marcus Penn <laughs> and Rob Cotto at Keen's. I think you and I both agree it's arguably the strongest steak place oh, yeah. in, in New York in terms of combining atmosphere, food, booze, blah, 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 but it's a fantastic spot. So we'll have a nice proper wrong reel hangout session with two of uh, wrong reel regulars. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But before we dive into mutiny, mutiny on the Bounty, Mutiny on the Bounty and the Bounty, Tell people what you've been up to. You've been cranking out a shitload of really cool videos on YouTube as of late. Yeah, you know, I've gotten a good reaction from them. Um, really happy to have them out in the world. In fact, we're on the eve. As we record this, the 10th of 10 is coming out on uh, Wednesday, uh, 28th of August. And uh, this is my final one that I'm doing this series. I do have the second season plan that I'm working. The, in fact... The Bounty is the very is the first episode of the next season. Mostly every mutiny. I'm working on a whole thing about mutinies. Um, you know, I just wanted to talk about The Bounty in particular because that's a phenomenon of three movies coming out of it. But the 10th episode of the first season is about one of my favorite character actors. I wanted to find some way to talk about Dune, and so I got to do it by talking about Ken McMillan, the guy who played the, uh, the Baron Harkonnen. 
And so I, this is the longest one of them all. It's about 13 minutes or so. And it's a career retrospective about a guy that a lot of people know on sight from a couple of really loud roles, but he's really interesting. I mean, he's just one of those salt of the earth Brooklyn guys who moved out to Los Angeles, got a character actor career and died in 89. He was only like 58 or so or 56. And, um, you know, you just think about what his third act would have been like. So everybody knows about him from, for instance, like Dune. And he played a lot of bad guys along the way, a lot of crooked cops, a lot of shitheads and stuff. Um, but he had these weird por- uh, portfolio of gentle characters he played off to the side. He taught acting in Santa Monica. He did a lot of theater. He did a lot of the public theater. He started out on stage. And I, it's funny because that's how you get to be such a loathsome guy in movies is by taking your craft really seriously and just making it second nature. So it was, it was exciting for me to do the research and see pictures of him on stage in like as Puck uh, from nice. like 1966. And it's like, whoever thought this guy would look young? Yeah. And, and some sh- people are just born old. Yeah. Some people are born old. And Ken McMillan is one of these guys that he, for when you see him pop up in like Stepford Wives or, or um, he's the sandwich maker in Serpico. He's got a very small role and that was his first role. Uh, it's right at the very beginning of the movie. You just think he still looks like he was 56 in 1971, and he died in 1989, not looking much older, just a little grayer. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that one. Hopefully people like it, because it, it was a worthwhile deep dive into an actor. That's, like, one of my favorite kind of categories, the reason why we watch movies, to see performers like that. And uh, he just, like, typifies character guy, the way they don't make it It's funny. I noticed it with a lot of filmmakers and just a lot of film goers and film lovers uh, as young cineasts they really like the really dynamic kind of attention grabbing stylist when it comes to storytelling the guys with great photography great editing etc but it seems like as people get older they start gravitating toward performance more and more like you hear about when Wes Anderson talks about movies he never talks about great cinematography or great music or anything he's always talking about the actors and the performers Quentin Tarantino is in his late 50s now same thing it's all he's doing now yeah and it's funny how Maybe that's, I think that's a pretty common thing, though. People just more and more just fall in love with the characters as opposed to the visual flourishes. Yeah, well, the, the little hermetic nerd society that we have about film, which is great because everyone kind of speaks the same language, and some people are certainly more conversant on technique. If you want to hear about Agnes Varda or something, you know, you can talk to Marcus Pinn about that all day long. Not that he doesn't have other expertises, too. Um, but you figure the language we all share in common is performance. Like, that's the kind of thing everybody can react to what... Um, Andrea Riseborough did in Mandy, for instance. You're just pulling a role out of my ass and say, these things are magic, you know? And it's like, that's the thing. Watching people inhabit these roles, that's, I think it starts to, that's when you're, it's up on its feet, is it, it's inhabited by a person. And again, Tarantino, the, the whole movie, Once Upon a Time, is just intertextual out the ass from all these freaking weird, you know, people whose careers he started charting. And he just wrote an ode, a love song to these weird actors that we've all forgotten. And that's the basis of it. I mean, there's yeah, a story. It's a day in the life of every mi- one of them. A million also rands. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, it's like, I hope, I don't know how long he can keep doing that for, but I know that no one else would do that. He might be done. I mean, he keeps saying that he doesn't really have anything left that he wants to say. And I'm sure his critics and people who hate him, like, you haven't had anything to say in quite some time. I would be like, <laughs> well, go fuck yourselves because I love and adore the guy because <laughs> he's a true cinema lover writ large and he's just allowing us to share in all of his various obsessions so I, I'm totally in his corner but if he what I, what I really wish he would do is go have a meeting in HBO and say hey you know what let's do a miniseries 
and it can be, I mean, he's, his last three projects have all been kind of sort of Western. So he's like, yeah. just do a fucking miniseries Western over at HBO and get it all out on the, the table. The best thing and, about that is it wouldn't count against his tally if he's really going to stick with this fucking arbitrary 10 thing. He can make some Nicholas Winding Refn thing and, and it could still be 8 and point, 8.5, 8.6. Yeah. And it's like, make all the little things you want that don't matter because they're on streaming. But it's like, dude, you make movies anyway that are in miniseries length. You got to crunch them down and you always tease this bullshit about maybe we'll put out a two-parter or maybe we'll do a spinoff and it's like just make the fucking thing at 10 episodes yeah don't abridge your vision and just go for the long thing because he now just, we're ready for it he's one of the last people though who just really loves the theatrical experience 35 millimeter getting people in a room i mean the new beverly has been selling out performances of once upon a time in hollywood for weeks i think it was like something like, like 30 days in a row or something like that that's just nothing but sold out shows he just really he's one of the only people who gives a shit about preserving that experience so i think it would be hard for him to make the switch to the small screen yeah it's funny that um i mean not we don't suffer from any sort of shortage of those the repertory thing here in new york for sure um you know like if you go to ifc and film forum and and metrograph quad I feel like we have 10 new Beverly's here. It's just that he's not the one, you know, you don't have a guy like Quentin running the show, but that's the beauty of it is that people are um, making you excited about movies because they're going all over the map. However, listening to Pierce cinema podcast, you know, Eric and Brian had talked about um, the month of programming around it. That was that, killer. That's a stunt. That man. might be my favorite podcast I've ever listened to where they just sat Tarantino down. He said, all right, justify all your picks for this month yeah. and he just went berserk it was talking wild. about like i always think that i know a thing or two about movies and then you listen to a podcast like about that like that and you're like oh i'm a total white belt like i, I don't know <laughs> shit he has like you know deep dive knowledge on the most obscure people imaginable and admittedly maybe if you took him to the 1920s or 1930s perhaps he would be less you know, I uh, be kind of less conversant, but when it comes to obscure genre films from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, he probably is the world's foremost expert on yeah. that front. Well, you said in the last episode, the, the anime episode with, with uh, Mikhail and, and Carlo, that he essentially went on this giant academic binge almost, where that's where he started forcing this bullshit into his head via his eye sockets. And you have to assume that he's going to pay, he's going to pay dividends down the road where all that education winds up influenced. Like, you know, he just decided to make movies about who Van Johnson or Van Heflin and uh, Ed Burns. And it's like, I don't know who these guys are. And it's yeah. like, you've made a whole love story about all these people. And now they are bad. I'm, I'm sure they're trapped in his head. So it's going to continue to sort of represent itself over and over again. I can't possibly turn that off. Right, well, before we get too deep down the rabbit hole of Tarantino, Let's talk historically first about what you know about the bounty, because obviously this is a real event. And like I said, there are a couple of books and different interpretations of the events, different movies, different shows. But before we get to any of the various versions out there, what is your knowledge of the actual mutiny on the bounty? Well, that's the beauty of it. At this point, the actual mutiny itself doesn't matter anymore because it's been so... It's so legendary. It's like when you and um, uh, was it Mackenzie Lambert were talking about like OK Corral or the shootout. You know, it's like what actually happened. Oh, David is, Lambert. David oh, Lambert. David Lambert. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking of yeah, Mackenzie Lambert. Different is, guy. Different guy. He's Other more. Of a, he's our Enzo G. Castellari expert. Love, I love both <laughs> those guys. I'm sorry I confused you guys. Sorry, um, but yeah, like in this case, there was a bounty. It was on. It was a mutiny on April 28, 1789. I I love that you bought the book. Kind of looked at it, almost went into I it. I read a chapter. Yeah. I've been going through this fantasy craze right now. I mean, I've got one of them right here, Prince of Thorns by Mark Lawrence, which I'm really digging. But I've been jumping between different fantasy franchises like a maniac. And I just, I, right while the enthusiasm is going hot, I, I can't stop. So. Yeah, no, that, 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 I think this is, this is, you can just let the movie speak for itself because 
let's put it this way. All these movies, the craze was started by a book called uh, Mutiny on the Bounty by these two guys named Charles Nordhoff and, and James Norton Hall. And that's what you got. And that's a three-book series, but the first book is called Mutiny on the Bounty. That came out in 32. And um, not that they hadn't made bounty movies before that. Yeah, there's a silent movie. Yeah, yeah. A silent movie from like 1916. Like, dude, fuck all. Like, we couldn't get it. There's no way you could see it. But that was directed in 16 by a guy named Raymond Langford. Um, yeah, and then, the, you know, essentially the first one comes out of Australia in 31. And that is just on the precipice of sound. And it looks it. We're, you know, I don't think we're going to talk about that one so much. But I, I did watch it for the purpose of the video I'm making uh, about mutinies. But, um, you know, the, ba- the bounty story, you know, the, the nut graph is that they, uh, uh, Captain Bly was a naval officer. He'd served with Horatio Nelson. He fought against, I guess, the French. Um, yeah, that's who they fought, right? French and Spanish. And uh, by this point, they were maintaining the English Empire. And so... Uh, there was a botanist or somebody in the Royal Society of Horticulture came up with this idea that one of the plants out in Tahiti <laughs> could have could be of use. And so they said, what we need to do is get cuttings and bring them to Jamaica. And what we need to do is bring them in, make a, a, a essentially graft them, make a horticulture uh, from one place to another, from one common uh, environment to another. And the reason why is because it was a, it was a plant called the breadfruit which looks like a big green bowling ball on the tree. I've actually seen these when I was in the Caribbean, and I actually knew why they were there. Like, seeing them in place... Apparently, they're disgusting. Like, the slaves took one bite, and they're like, we're not eating this shit. I'm not eating this Like, garbage. if a slave's like, I'm, I'd rather starve, you know the food tastes like ass. You fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. You should think about something else. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, in the Caribbean, I'd seen the Bounty before, I, the 1984 version of the Bounty, and then I was on the British, British Virgin Islands, and I saw the breadfruit, and I'm looking up in the tree, I'm like, oh, this is breadfruit, and I'm like... Oh boy, this is a breadfruit. What I'm looking at is a place where there were slaves. And I'm like, ooh, okay. But so um, Bly was commissioned to, you know, essentially build an exposition, an expedition. And um, he was furnished with some crew members, but he picked this one guy, this young guy named Fletcher Christian, who was um, another, another naval guy. Bly was a little older. I think Bly was 33 or 34 at the time of the mutiny, but he was a seasoned vet, had been all over the seas. Fletcher Christian was a guy from, um, I don't know, central England. Younger, uh, a little more um, perspicacious. I don't know, a little more, a little more of a rapscallion, that kind of thing. He picked him. He wanted him to be the master's mate. Um, so he went out with some guys that were given to him that he never sailed with before, and some other guys that they did sail out. So they went to Tahiti. What they tried to do now, this is going to be a little bit of a geography lesson. Get through this really quickly. They left Portsmouth, England, which is to the um, west of Southampton, I think, um, not too far from the shipyards where they build a lot of it. So they went out of Portsmouth. His idea was to go around the Horn, south of South America, practically the Arctic Circle, some of the worst seas in the fucking universe. And they zigzag. They got down there in a couple of months and then zigzag back and forth. They'd push in, they'd get blown back, push in, blown back. And yeah, it was, it's ice and giant waves and storms. House. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, just, it's not, it's, right. And so it's like these guys were like barely surviving these huge ice storms and this, the waves were as tall as buildings. And so it took them, I think, 30 days of trying to punch around the Horn and um, finally, you know, this this guy was thinking, we're going to save all this time. We go around. So he's like, nope, you got to go the long way. Pass out past Africa, all the way through India, through the Endeavor Strait. Through Can you it- imagine spending 30 days in rough water? I've spent like 30 minutes in rough water 30 before. Minutes. And I'm like, I'm never getting on a boat again. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and But he was just so damn pigheaded and had this idea that I'm going to do it faster than anybody else. We're going to do the efficiency. And it, circumnavigate the globe. And circumnavigate the globe, which still had a lot of novelty then. Right. Yeah. These guys, that was still a big deal for Captain could show his medal for having done that. So he had to sort of eat shit and say, you know what, guys, on the other hand, we're, we're going to live. We're not going to freeze your 
your dicks off. We're going to turn back and essentially sail to Africa much more humanely. It's mostly warm waters. It's you know sub-equatorial, that kind of thing. And so I think the idea was that anytime you make a, a you know, they call it a grocery run even back then. Uh, it was the idea that there's two, two, two and a half years of your life gone. That's what you'd expect. A year to get there, a year to get back. And these mariners... You know, they weren't all voluntary. A lot of them was like a ship of scalawags. Oh, they like walk into a bar and like... You, are, you, and you. Coming <laughs> like, what? Yeah. And the funny thing is the, the movie from 32 is the only one that actually um, expressly said that these guys were press ganged into it. None of the other, yeah. two, the other two versions. I mean, Clark Gable's got a smile on his face and he's very good natured about it, but they're basically just grabbing people against their will and enslaving them on the boat yeah. and whipping the shit out of them for from, not liking from day it. one. <laughs> So they get, they get, you know, they, what they do is along the way, I mean, th- this is a, like, who the fuck could understand that this is a way to make a living, that somebody would want to do this, and that you could run a country, you could run an empire this way. And the English had this whole thing about strict discipline. And, you know, first of all, everybody was rotting of scurvy and typhus when they're on the boat anyway. And, they, you know, they had to do exercises. They would muster for dancing and jumping jacks and shit like that. And it's, you know, an old Englishman, a Georgian Englishman is like running the thing with this the iron fist and everyone's supposed to be happy and it's like who the hell would want this kind of life so they would stop off in South Africa they stopped off on these islands they would you know supply runs fresh water etc etc they get to Tahiti and this is where this is where it gets blown up and I can't imagine that like how is this possibly the first time this happened they get to Tahiti and it's all these bare ass beautiful Tahitian women run out swinging their their boobs on the beach and the guys in you know banana string banana uh, leaf g-strings come out and they'd been going there for years and years and years beforehand so I think Bly had the experience of having been there with Captain Cook 10 years earlier so they recognized him and the whole point was to give him like a, all these gifts gold baubles mirrors all the shit that didn't have for modernity and say, well, what we would like in return is cuttings of some bread. Your, some of your nasty ass fucking trees. Yeah, the shit that you guys won't even eat. <laughs> yeah. And so they cultivate, I think they were there for like something like 13 months. It was a long time. They were, they were stuck there trying to find a way to get them, to, to grow them in um, a sort of terrarium or an arboretum on the island, put them back in the boat and somehow have them survive the trip back. Um, and this is where apparently Bly goes nuts. Bly, I think, flips his wig and he did wear wigs, I think. They all did back then. And so he was decent, more or less. I think there was one flogging on the way there, but he kind of lost his you know, screw loose on the way back. I think he just had this thing about watching the men. Uh, they all got VD on the island. It's like they all just became slovenly. They became beach bums. They're eating yeah. coconuts, eating bananas, going fishing. Yep. And apparently, for some of the Tahitians, pale skin was like a sign of divinity. It was very rare. So even if you were the nastiest, toothless, scurvy sailor, down. you were a prince among men and yeah. you were going to live, it was going to make a Roman orgy every day for you. So yeah, yeah surprise, surprise. They weren't necessarily <laughs> going to want to get back on the boat. And eat limes <laughs> and eat while limes getting beaten. And get whipped within an inch of their lives on a daily basis. And yeah. probably butt raped at night. <laughs> <laughs> they put saltpeter in the food for that reason. Yeah, and so and so I think that, you know, the, the story is that Bly loses his mind. I mean, all they do is depose people who were there. Um, they talk to some of the guys when they actually get to, you know, jumping ahead. The people on the, who mutinied the bounty went to a little tiny island. It's still tiny, and the only thing, it's called Pitcairn Island, and the only reason it's there is essentially because it is like the bounty museum. They have one of the swivel cannons there. And apparently some of Fletcher Christian's descendants yeah, still live there. They're all, they're all yeah. like partially white. Because they went back and picked up all their wives to take them with them. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, we're not going to just 
chill by ourselves on this island. Like, yeah, so they, right. It's like the story of the bounty comes from obviously the captain's point of view, and a few of the, the you know they they did capture some of them on the Tahiti who stayed behind. You know, there's a couple of different perspectives. And in spite of Captain Bly being a pretty tough guy, he did perform one of the great feats of seamanship yeah. by on a boat about the size of my sofa with like 20 guys and like one, a cup of water between them. No food, yeah. Yeah, survived for months and made it back to safety and made it back to the... I mean, that, that alone is just astonishing. Yeah, if you look at it, I had to look at a map. I've never been to that part of the world. But it was oh. thousands of miles. It was like 3,000 miles. Yeah. In, in, like, in like, literally like a tub. Yeah, a little, a, little, a little canoe surrounded by waves like 30 feet high. With, with like venereal dudes all around you yeah. with gigantic sailor beards and yeah. that shit and no teeth. Yeah, and he just decided he got them there somehow. If you look at the if you look at the route from uh, Tahiti where they pretty much dropped them off, and they almost like went a straight line through the Barrier Reef, north of Australia, into what we consider yeah, Indonesia avoiding today. Avoiding islands filled with cannibals along the way yeah. because this is a time period where there were still islands where you just land and they would eat you. They're just like, <laughs> yeah, who are you guys? Yeah. You're salad man. You're fucking. Exactly. That's it. You're pot roast. And he somehow got them through. And he was the, the whole thing. He had they, he decided he could have went back to Tahiti. Um, but he he actually picked the hard route. That's you know the other thing is that he kind of made his own bed in this case. But yes, he got all the guys in this little scow. He got them back to there, and they picked this place that was a Dutch colony from the the Dutch East India Company, the so-called VOC, and that was a friendly port for Englishmen. And he you know gets off the boat. He's got a log under his arm, and he sort of says, "I'd like to report," as Tony Hopkins says in in the Bounty, "I'd like to report an act of piracy." And so, you know, it's weird. That, that's the thing. They, Fletcher Christian was the guy. He was the first mate. He turned on him because he turned on Fletcher Christian. So he developed this entity. And I think he felt that all these men had lost their nerve. And, and so he decided, like, he went shithouse with the punishment. And that's what happens. It bites you in the ass. So Christian rousted him out of bed in the middle of the night, had all the lower seamen, all the sort of rabble with the guys. And it was the officers and the sort of white bread dudes up top were on the boat with Bly. And so you had two different classes to guys. You had the cutthroats and the mercenaries down. That's who sided with him. And, you know, the, the funny, it's funny now because I'm, I'm not there and I didn't get killed. <laughs> but all the guys who wound up mutinying, they wound up all killing each other on the island. So by the time they find people in, in 1808, the last man standing says, oh, shit, it wasn't so good here. Because if you, if you mutinied once, you'll mutiny over and over uh, again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we'll get to that with the, uh, the film The Bounty of 1984. Yeah. But... You got to be very careful in terms of which allies you pick. Yeah, and right, it's like traitors will always traitor. That's yeah. the deal. No one will trust them, and it's like these guys just got a taste for blood, and they realize. And so they, yeah, they. So essentially, very few people survived the um, the mutiny, and nobody knows what happened to Fletcher Christian. They didn't find any bones. Apparently, yeah, I think there are myths and rumors and legends that some say he even re returned to to England. But total horseshit. We, but we don't really know. Total horseshit. No, I think I, in the fifties, I read that scuba divers finally found um they found the spar and they found the rudder of the bounty I and mean, they were pieces of timber that were obviously a ship and they said well this is it so the little bits and pieces apparently they said the first divers who were englishmen went there would grab these planks and then they would actually made they made keepsakes they made snuff boxes out, oh, nice. of, out of bounty timbers it's like hey let's have a little piece no, that, of history that's a collector's item that's that a collector's item right there yeah so that's it i mean it i think that if you've seen any of these movies you know, that that's the path. How, the, how do mutinies happen? How the fuck do mutiny happen? It's because it's like the captain poison morale in this case. I mean, it seems fairly simple. I'm just going to pitch it right now if anyone's listening. But there should be an episode of Star Trek where you basically recreate the mutiny on the bounty, but just do it out in space. Yeah. That would be fucking killer. That, that, that would be the, the, the new way to do a fresh adaptation, because obviously it's, it's been done and done and done. But if you want, you could keep everything the same, just replace the ships with spaceships, and yeah, do, it, do it all over again. Surprised it hasn't been done that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. 
Anyway, yeah, so I'm giving yeah. these things away for free. <laughs> right. This is intellectual property. Uh, we'll put up on the YouTube channel later. More tea, sir? No, you get out. Yes. Yes, enter me, sir. Oh yes, I got a job for you this morning. Sit down. Had your breakfast? Yes, thank you, sir. I want you to sign the ship's daybook, list of all supplies issued on the outward voyage. Oh, certify and sign. You should raise the islands any time now. <clears throat> Not a bad voyage so far. All hands accounted for. Only six down with scurvy. Five with scurvy, one with flogging. Correct, Mr. Christian, as you credit. Five with scurvy, one with flogging. We're still under canvas. Mr. Bly, I can't sign this book. No such amounts have been issued to the men. Now, look here, you've signed daybooks before with a few extra kegs in the ship never carried. I have, sir. And why not? We all do it. We'd be fools if we didn't on a lieutenant's pay, and I want to stow away enough to keep me out of the gutter when I'm too old for service. I understand. The captain's prerogative. Ordinarily, I wouldn't mind. Why is this case different? Because the captains I've served with before didn't starve their men. They didn't save money by buying up the stinking meat that you put aboard at Tenerife. They didn't buy yams that was sick in a pig and force them on their crews. Silence! They didn't call them in thieves and flog on the bone because they complained about it. You impudent scoundrel, send that book! I refuse! And you have no authority that can make me. I haven't! I'll show you authority! Lay all hands out! All hands out! Very good, sir. Company, sir! Mr. Christian, step forward. If any officer, mariner, or soldier, or other person in the fleet shall disobey any lawful command of any of his superior officers, every such person being convicted of any such offence shall suffer death, or such other punishment as shall be inflicted on him by the sentence of a court-martial. Mr. Christian, you will sign this book. Mr. Bly, ship's company will bear witness that I sign in obedience to your orders. Remember, sir, I should demand a court of inquiry in England. You mutinous dog. Retract that, sir. I will repeat it, you're a mutinous dog. Mr. Christmas. All right, well, let's switch <clears throat> gears into the first big movie adaptation of this story, directed by Frank Lloyd, Muni on the Bounty, 1935, starring one of the greatest actors who ever lived, Charles Lawton, and one of the biggest movie stars of all time, Clark Gable, a perfect study in contrast. So just before we get into the nuts and bolts behind the scenes and how it differs, et cetera, just as a movie-going experience, what do you think of the 1935 flick? Oh, it's great. You know, I hadn't seen this. for the Once I started researching the topic, I then watched it a couple of times. And I'm largely unfamiliar with, with Lawton. Uh, yeah, outside As an actor, I hadn't really seen a whole lot of his stuff. I've seen, you know, Night of the Hunter. And even Gable, I haven't seen a ton of Gable either. Um, I've seen It Happened One Night. You know, I've seen... Um, um, uh, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, yeah, yeah. of course. That's, I, and, and for an avowed uh, Houston fan like me, I actually haven't seen The Misfits. I gotta, oh, I gotta, it's cool. You, yeah, you, I know. It's it. going to be great. And that yeah. was the, the last movie he made. But, um, yeah, it's, it's weird. You know, like, this was a movie made in that presentational... This was, yeah, 35... I think I said 33 before. 35. Yeah, books 32, flicks 35. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the one before, the Australian one came out, I think, in 33, and that was a direct forebear in front of it. Um, yeah, this, the movie's fantastic. I mean, it's funny to think about. It was shot mostly off of Catalina, which makes perfect sense. The replica they built for it was great. It was a one-to-one -one replica. Um, 
And the study in contrast, that's what's perfect about it, is that this, these are back in the days where, of course, you would put Gable in a movie next to Lawton, and they're all Englishmen. And there's these, there's these rhapsodies that Gable's character, Fletcher Christian, has about his childhood in Cumberland. And listening to, I remember the farm in Cumberland. But at least he doesn't do the Brando accent. Like, he just talks like Gable. <laughs> so it's like, it, 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 it's, like back, I... this is old school Hollywood. And you, if you hire a movie star, just let the movie star be a movie star. Like, don't try to make him do, like, uh, Cary Grant was not a character actor. Cary Grant would play Cary Grant in every single movie. It's just like a slight variation yeah. on Cary Grant. And that's what movie stars used to be. They were just these personas, and you would just insert that persona into various vehicles. Yeah, I mean, Gable, obviously these guys could act. Yes, you're not wrong about that. And Gable, whether, if you watch him with Claudette Colbert, it's a much different character. I, I love It Happened One Night. Yeah, so he's, it's one he, of the most delightful comedies ever It made. is, and he, he's playing a sort of sweet... No, it's not sweeter, it's tetchy. It's like this version, this, this, this is a very expansive character. He's got a lot of humor. You know, the thing about the, the other adaptations of this is that they don't have a lot of humor, especially the third one is dry as a fucking bone. Well, it's funny when you hear like Rob Brydon like imitate yes. it in like Trip to Italy. Is Mr. Like Fryer? Damn you, my man. Don't turn your back on me, man. Exactly. Yeah, uh, but, but it's like this one has a good humor. There's a twinkle in his eyes. He's playing it rakishly like you would. I mean, it's perfectly understandable contemporaneous to 1935 material. Uh, and the same thing, it's like, Charlie Lawton was coming off of, um, I think he had made Hunchback, Notre Dame, not too far before And he also that. done Old Dark House with James Whale. He's brilliant in Old Dark House. I mean, yeah. he's a ridiculously good actor. And, he is, and yeah. it's like, again, a lot of demons, if you if you listen to that. I mean, the book that Elsa Lanchester wrote about it, that our, our, our friend Tom Bly had helped to get back into reprinting, you know, and it's like, he had a very weird... He was in the closet, but he was not in the closet. And he was she in the was, closet she, to the outside world, but he was not so much in the no. closet where he wasn't afraid to bring his full-time masseur slash boyfriend <laughs> to set, much to the horror of Clark Gable, who apparently had taken um, Lawton to a whorehouse as a way of like bonding and getting to know him. And Lawton apparently was flattered, but he's like, this is not really... Not my, my thing, dude, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I'm just going to have the salad. It's yeah. okay. Yeah, but the, you know, even like Elsa Lanchester apparently didn't know about it either. Like she says that she was sold a bill of goods, which is weird. It's like, she, you know, he, he would go out and he would quote unquote transgress and then kind of come on his knees begging, no, I swear it's a weakness. And it's like, yeah, it's a weakness. You know, I mean, it's like, you're going to keep doing it over and over again. It's not like something you can it's help. It's a weakness only if you're the bottom, not the top. <laughs> <laughs> right. He was like pitching or catching, buddy. buddy. The t-shirt I saw on Fire Island once, I'm not gay, but my asshole is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come up with that, people. Don't get angry at me. Um, but yeah, so, but the thing is, is that Lawton, what I, from what I read about this, you know, Lawton was extremely self-conscious. I mean, first of all, he looks like he's in the best shape of his career. You know, he, he may be an Englishman and he may have like a weird, round, you know, jubbly face. And I'm guessing he must have been in his That's late like 30s. That's like the English body type that like, uh -huh. you, you think of. Like. But he was like, he was really obsessed with the fact that he was sharing the stage with Gable and he knew, well, no one's going to, you know, you're going to wilt like a flower in a dark room, like an orchid in a freezer next to Gable. And so it's weird because I guess he must have, you know, I mean, he is an actor that acts. He's not, and he does have a persona, obviously, and he's got a, a type and he's a movie star. But he could act. And it's like, you know, his version of Captain Bly is very effective, where it's like you definitely understand the human being inside there and you see the, what makes him tick. You see the motivation. I mean, it's simpler because yeah. it's, it's less astonishing like, body posture, yes. astonishing articulation. But 
even when he's a son of a bitch, you can still kind of see the humanity. But when you see him saving his boys at sea later on, yeah. it is a genuine heroic moment. So he's not just your mustache twirling son of a bitch. He's got a lot of dimensions to his character. It's yeah. fascinating. Uh, and his insecurities are different because they're so subdermal. Again, it's not, you know, this isn't a stretch to say a movie made in 1935 is going to have a much different psychological profile than the movies made later. Of the three of these, you know, the 84 version by Roger Donaldson, The Bounty, is pure psychology. It's, you know, it is a movie of the mind and it's edited that way and there's a lot of great sequences um, completely different approach and you know you're going to act like Tony Hopkins you're going to give a deep psychological performance the first of many in his career he would give and um, obviously that wasn't Lawton's first inclination but he did so much like you said his, his, his face that fucking bottom lip is like a gigantic piece of meat it's this big flapping thing and he was able to just punctuate his sentences and he would just look and twist and that and, and it, like you can tell his mood because it's almost like he was pouting um, and he never stops. This is the thing. His there's not really an arc to his version of Bly. He starts out like well, the first thing you see him. They're ordering a dead man be whipped in front of everyone. Like had to witness three hundred times. Three hundred times, and he's already yeah. sir. He's dead. I'll concede with the punishment. And and yeah, they, somebody faints watching this corpse. Get that man off. <laughs> <laughs> Do not turn your head away. And uh, right, and it's like you know he doesn't really have an arc. He's the same guy from beginning to end. You know, uh, but it's it's a fully realized, it's an airtight performance. You know, it's, it is kind of like watching um, Bruno Ganz in Downfall. Um, is that, the, yeah, the, the the German movie about the bunker, Hitler in the bunker. I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah, no. Is that the one that everybody always says, like, yes. the Hitler parodies from? That's it. Like, yeah. talking about Avatar, talking about whatever, just, like, yeah, you just put in whatever subtitles you like and watch Hitler go berserk. Yeah, Hitler's um, Hitler's arc in that movie is narrow because, again, you're, at, you're in the end game. And so all you're doing is watching a man fall apart. And the same thing, it's like, Bly starts off here, and maybe by the end of the movie, he's three microns to the right. There is a small arc, but it's like he drives this whole thing. You watch Fletcher Christian has an arc where he sort of starts off as this guy and becomes, you know, in, in opposition to Bly. Um, but it is funny watching these two guys. You know, you could say it's preposterous, Clark Gable. But the thing is, Clark Gable's great in this. I mean, if and he says it's his favorite movie he ever made, and he made a lot of good ones. And at the moment, I think this is the talk about a leitmotif. Just about every single time you read the trivia roster on these three movies. In the moment they make them, everybody says, I was miscast, this wasn't a good choice. With a little distance, everyone says, oh, I kind of like that movie. That's one of my favorite movies that I did. And it's weird how it has that effect where Gibson thought he might have been miscast. Tony Hopkins talks about how he thought it was like a wasted effort because that movie was a bit Marlon of a- Brando was miscast. And Marlon Brando was miscast. <laughs> but God damn, man, I love his version. It's so... What a fucking train wreck, but it is so... Honestly, every single thing he does is interesting. Every single thing he does in that movie well, is interesting. I, I, I don't want to uh, j- jump ahead because no, still got too much stuff, too much, literally like too much stuff to chew on with this one. But what I liked about this is it's got some really exciting filmmaking going on that I think sometimes people overlook because the character study is so rich and fascinating. Like when they're first leaving port at the beginning, they have this crazy hyper montage of like people like in close up screaming and people climbing up ropes and. It's a really busy, energetic movie, but it's almost like Soviet-era montage filming. I was like, wow, this is like real-deal fucking filmmaking, whereas a lot of movies in the 30s can feel a little formulaic in terms of like your classic kind of Hollywood scenarios. And I was really impressed just by how visceral and exciting some of these sequences remain. Yeah, that is a fantastically edited uh, sequence. And it was. I thought immediately of like uh, Eisenstein. And I watched Potemkin before this because it's, again, it's the Ur text of all the, yeah, you know... Of all yet another mutiny. The, yeah. yet, another, yet another mutiny. But it has all that same Kuleshov effect cuts, that quick cutting. And it's like, oh, I haven't seen a lot of that technique in these movies. 
Also, I mean, it was there, it was done correctly, and it was really well placed to get the excitement going of the spar and the jib and the mainsail and the mizzen mast. And, and it's like, it really does make you feel like shit. And she's flying, Mr. Christian. You know, as, the, as it's out on the high seas, you get that excitement that this is the best it's going to be before it, it, it declines. But the filmmaking is really interesting. Like you said, the, the process of being on a boat, like, granted, there was a lot of like backlot stuff. I guess they were uh, on the MGM. Yeah, MGM did all these. They're on the MGM lot, so and they lost a ton of footage. At one point, they were like out like for months shooting, and they came back, and it was all totally unusable because yeah. the film hadn't been stored properly. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's just uh, what you what you get when you make these fucking tropical movies. Like you just are, you're inviting disaster into your life. And even more amazing, I I would say probably eighty percent of the movie was shot in Catalina or off of Catalina on an actual boat, and so the crew was crammed in. You had all those big cameras, but the rocking was real. You know, like that sun that was actually outdoors. And of course, you do the insert shots that are rear projection. But even the outside shot, I mean, the inside shots that are rear projection still have a sense of motion to it. Well, I think they must have been gimbling the people inside the boat yeah. as the background. Like, is using, doing- like I've seen that when they're like, shooting in the interior of a car and it's obviously not moving, but they just like some two by fours under the frame and they just kind of like step on them and lean on them and you mm-hmm. just kind of create this illusion of motion. And actually, sometimes it feels more realistic than actually shooting on the road. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, in this case, right, to do it on a boat. I mean, I can't imagine how cost ineffective it was. But then on top of that, this movie does a fair amount of location shooting in Tahiti. They got these guys. They fucking went to Tahiti. And for post-code nudity, it actually pushes things pretty far. You see a lot of naked girls from behind. A lot of side. Yeah, a lot of of side boo. But yeah, if they'd made this three years earlier... Yeah. It would have been a, quite a different movie. According to legend, there's a scene or a shot where all the men are leaving with all these beautiful girls. One sailor goes off with like a teenage boy. But that, that may or may not be total bullshit. But that is, <laughs> that is the myth that that scene was actually cut. Yeah. I, you know, the, the look of grain. There's one shot in particular where when Christian is offered, he's, he's ordered back to the boat. And Clark Gable's doing this thing where he's sort of looking at the women and there's, he, he knows his intended and he's forced, like the captain says, it's almost his punishment. You got to go back. And it goes between rear projection and it goes, and then there's the shot of him and the film grain gets really, really, you know, grainy and noisy. And he's walking down that beach. I mean, it could be a stunt double. It could be a stand in. But I mean, the actors are really there in Tahiti doing their thing. Um, you know, like that's the kind of thing. How many movies were shot across the globe? I mean, in the 30s, almost none. I mean, yeah, it, that's it, a big deal. That, that was the beautiful thing about the Hollywood studio system is that it was a studio system. You had all these fucking giant sound stages. So you just, they were all just pure, they were just exercises and pure artifice. That's why all the, the, the another leitmotif of the bounty movies is that they are, uh, it's a very special, a very special episode of movie night because each one of them was, was conceived as a big project for the day and age they were built. Yeah. You're talking about some of the most expensive movies at that time, the one in 35, the, the remake in 62. These were every dime that MGM could muster for the movie. That, that yeah, I think all, it was the most expensive movie they'd made since Ben-Hur like in their early 20s. So it was a giant colossal production. The first Ben-Hur. Or the yeah, yeah, second. Yeah, the, the silent. Well, there's, whatever the big one was. I haven't yeah. seen this. I've only seen the uh, one from the 50s, the William the Ch- Wyler the, one. Yeah, the but there's Chuck one Heston. in the 20s, the big one. Yeah. That, was, that was previously their most expensive movie they'd made. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like they decided that this is, it, it was great material for them. You know that like if you start doing location shooting and again, you're fabricating an entire, the, also, each of these movies fabricated an original boat for the purpose. They made a life-size bounty, which was crazy. 
I mean, now... And the one from the 60s stuck around for decades. It didn't sink till Sandy. Yeah, off the coast of Carolina. Yeah, like they used it in Cutthroat Island. Like, it was, yeah. like, it was, a, it was like, a, like a tourist attraction for, it was for decades. Yeah. yeah, all these boats, the ones that they, they, you know, they were built for the purpose of the movies, but um, but then they had a, a long life afterwards as seagoing vessels. In some cases, they were redressed as other boats. Uh, and then there, some of them were just made into tourist ferries, you know, novelty things where you can be on an old three-master. And and the thing is, they said these each of these boats was apparently rigged exactly to spec. They may have been made with modern, you know, modern body requirements that look like uh, the ye olde English boats, but the riggings were all state-of-the-art. Um, that's the way they roped them back then. So they were sailed as they sailed them back in the 18th century, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Reminds me, I remember there was an experiment when I was a kid where somebody tried to recreate like the sailing of the pilgrims to Massachusetts and they lasted like three days before they're all so violently ill. They're like, fuck this. We're going back. <laughs> <laughs> it was like impossible to recreate what these people had endured. So I guess it sounds very romantic that you're going to do like an actual recreation, but it can be pretty tough on you. But I just checked my notes and I just remember one scene. You mentioned earlier how they're not necessarily... Um, that funny, but there's this one bit in this 1935 one that just made me howl. All the officers are having dinner, and somebody's telling a story, and somebody has a line where they say, uh, I don't despise facts, I'm indifferent to them. And Charles Lawton reacting goes like, ha 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 <laughs> it like, It's the weirdest, like, most theatrical laugh I've ever fucking heard. I was like, that's, the whole movie is worth the price of admission just for this one moment where Charles Lawton actually has a moment of levity laughing at something that someone said, you know, at the dinner table. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the levity, I can't, now I'm, I'm now they're starting to, the guy coming out with a pot, with a bucket of water, the first, the first beat is that he throws it into the wind and the water comes back at him. Do you ever throw water into the wind? And then they show him a couple of minutes later throwing water over the other side and he tosses the bucket out. And it's like there is a couple of like Three Stooges yeah. type gags. Yeah, wah, like, wah, wah. Or like when, <laughs> and there's a guy from Little Caesar who's one of the sailors and when he uh, drinks milk from a coconut, it's like, oh, like the cows here, they lay eggs. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's very broad 30s humor, but it's the kind of humor that like John Ford would adore. It is, but I mean, at the same time, this movie had a shitload of flogging like they did. I mean, there's the violence. They weren't trying to hold back at all. Or what, what, the what's the term for when they just like basically just splay you out like in a spider web just in the sun just to cook for like 10 hours in a row? But they basically yeah. just tie you up in the rigging and just let you bake. Spread eagle. Spread yeah. eagle. They, they, they just let you fry. You kiss the, kiss the gunner's daughter. Yeah. Or they just, they, oh, like there's one guy who wants a glass of water. So they're like, oh, you want water? Fine. Fuck you. And they just throw him in the water and just drag his ass by a rope. <laughs> <laughs> for like half a day until he dies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's rough sailing. Yeah, this, this movie has the this one and the and the uh, the sixty two remake by by Lewis Milestone both have a keel hauling. It's as if they decide. I'm sure it must be in the book because it didn't actually happen in history. Like keel hauling was more or less out of vogue past the 17th century, I think. And they certainly didn't keelhaul anybody. And the idea, like everyone knows the word keelhauling because we've seen a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But in reality, what keelhauling is is one of two things. You were either thrown over the side of the boat in one direction, and the ropes went under the boat. You were dragged across the either the, the, the width of the hull over the barnacles and out the other side, or you were dragged the length of the boat from the, from the, from the prow to the stern. And the whole point is it was essentially a slow execution. You either drowned or you got the shit sliced out of you by everything, every bivalve that was growing on the bottom of the ship. Yeah. So the, the effect of the keelhaul in the first one, it was obviously a miniature dummy, a very crude figure that they just cut to in the, the biggest you know, blink. 
Uh, but it gets the point across that they just murdered that man, yeah. that sort of thing. The second one has actual stunt work. The 62 version, the keel hauling is underwater photography with an actor, a stuntman who dives. And, and you know, there's a lot, it's a lot more intensive. But Yeah, yeah. I remember when I, I used to do a lot of like water skiing and hydrosliding with my dad on, on the James River when I was a kid. And just as an experiment one, so I was like, what would just happen if you just drag me while I'm hanging on to the rope and you last seconds because the first thing I mean if you're, unless you're tied to it you just go well because you don't stay on the surface you start to sink and yeah. then you're just being dragged like two feet under so you're drowning and your your fingers just break so once again you, ha- you have to be tied but they'd have to be going fast enough and this would not be possible with like a sailboat, but you'd have to be going fast enough where you would skim across yeah. the top, which would also probably just rip you to pieces as well. But uh, yeah, so we, I experimented when I was like 10 and yeah, it's, it's not fun. Yeah, so the interesting thing about this movie is that because it's based on the book um, that came out in, uh, yeah, in 32, it, this is what's a strange structure. You do have these two Titanic figures. You got Bly and Christian who were, you know, that's the focus point. That's where your casting is in every one of these movies. But this movie, I think, is from the point of view of this guy, this uh, Mr. Byam. And it starts off with him. He's sort of a privileged Ponzi fancy boy from a fancy English family who's going on his first voyage. And so you see the you see the adventure from his point of view. And he's um, a very white bread, upper class guy who's essentially going there to make a dictionary. And so everything that happens, the sailing life, the discipline, all the fraying minds, the ardor of the thing is really out of his gamut. And so um, the actor who plays him is this guy named Franchot Tone, who I'm really not familiar with. He really looks like, the, talk about anybody who looks like the picture of someone from, from 35, it's this guy. I don't know he had a you know he had a big long you know career of doing character roles or anything like that but he has almost like the most simple open face there's very little complex about him he just looks like the kind of pretty boy they would put in these things and really Gable was really threatened by him and like kind of resented his casting initially because he regarded him as a rival but then when they discovered they were both raging alcoholics they became <laughs> the best of friends <laughs> yeah and obviously that guy was no threat to gable you know like nobody yeah. remembers who franchot tone is yeah i mean i think yeah, movie stars have very fragile egos i know gable was very threatened by lawton because gable apparently was a bit of a, a bit of a homophobe and I, according to legend he had george cukor fired from uh gone the wind because he was worried that there was going to be like he's going to seem too gay etc yeah. which is nonsense because George Cukor obviously was out of the closet in Hollywood but in the closet of the outside world he was a very savvy filmmaker and knew how to kind of walk walk that line but uh, yeah I guess uh, Gable was a little bit fragile but I think Lawton was a little fragile as well where Lawton if he didn't like a take would do things to kind of yeah. ruin the take and so on and so forth and then Gable would like storm off the set so yeah, a lot of very fragile egos kind of clashing on this movie and I mean that, how that's exactly what the story on the 60 the 62 version is is that you're talking about everybody doing everything Trevor Howard Richard Harris and Marlon Brando and the directors Carol Reed and Lewis Milestone all in a state of open warfare with each other <laughs> that's insane I mean I guess that's how you get a movie like that is that there's just, right open warfare between everybody you got Dick Harris who's drunk off his ass I'm sure the whole time and Brando who's just insane, just detonating everything I know the way you've gone on at length about how um, Val Kilmer would like well, it's, destroy it's, the movie uh, he was in Island of Dr. Moreau yes. level problems yes magnified by a th- I thought the Island of Dr. Moreau was a disaster production until I, started, until I started reading about the 62 mutiny on the bounty but before we get to that do you have any remaining thoughts on the earlier one because I feel like you could do an entire podcast just on Marlon Brando's antics on the 62 film yeah uh, yeah but right before we change to I, I'd say the one thing is um, this is something in common with two of the three movies the very end 
you know, you have it, it splits after the mutiny. It splits into two different points of view. You see the, the, the journey of the mutineers trying to find their home. And in this case, because it's Clark Gable, it's 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 this glowing, sunny, we're going to build a utopia here type thing. Complete horseshit. But, you know, they, he, there he is at the wheel looking at the horizon saying, this will be our home and we will be a, a beautiful united people and almost like the end. Yeah, we're building a house on a hill, etc. Yeah, all that horseshit. <laughs> and the other thing is that Bly gets back to England and Bly is tried by an inquest in all of these movies. In fact, the third movie is from the point of view, it's a flashback from the inquest. Yeah, it's a nice framing device. It's a great framing device yeah. with, with Olivier doing the doing essentially the, the inquest. Zeus himself. Zeus himself. And um, the the first two movies take the pains. I just realized Bounty made four has two Zeus's. You got Liam Neeson, future yeah. Zeus, and you got Lawrence Olivier, who had just done Zeus a couple years prior. Yeah. So great, right? <laughs> Beautiful. Um, the the but the, the Captain Bly is exonerated in real life in history, except the first two movies. There's a script. People, the writers are speaking through the script. And maybe it was in the book because I couldn't tell you for sure. But what they do is they make a point of judging Bly. And this is, this is the invisible hand of the author coming through and uh, essentially blaming um, him for creating the, the – he's saying, yes, you're, you're exonerated, but um, – But you were mean. You were mean and you, you, hurt were, their, you hurt their feelings. You were an honor. You were yeah. dishonorable. You were cruel and you were mean. And it's like the look. It's like even though, you know, the real Bly had a long career, it's their way of striking a blow of saying someone should punish Bly. In the 35 one, the biggest act of cruelty that I see that he's guilty of is when he's basically feeding his men rotten meat and asking Clark Gable to sign a log stating that they've been feeding much better than they actually have. Yeah. And I was like, woo, all right, this, this is blatantly unethical where you are trying to save money by starving and or just malnourishing your crew and then trying to act like you're not i was like all right that's that's legit like I, that mutiny is justified fuck, <laughs> fuck this guy yeah it is and it's like you have to put the fact that they exonerated him but then the, you, you also need an accounting the villainous need to be taken down a notch especially in postcode and the other weird thing about this movie, again, we can we can transition out of it right now, is that the movie has a, a role, a, a title role at the beginning and sort of one at the end saying that it's an examination of the harsh discipline, almost saying like the strength of the English Navy and how horrible they treated their seamen was a way for England to... Um, control the seas to sort of standardize things to put the fear of Christ in their men and saying that this was so harsh and what they did was rewrite the rules of discipline. Now, again, I don't think that's cor correct, but the movie, the postcode movie, it has to say something like, all the violence you see here was constructive yeah. in yeah. the end. Essentially yes. went this to... This is our happy ending. This yeah. is our happy ending, yeah. right. This is the last time this happened ever. No one was ever heard on a boat ever again. And that's a weird coda, but they do give you a postscript for that. Mr. Christian, set the gallants again. But you see, sir, the masts are straining, sir. You arguing with me? By no means, sir. I was simply answering your question. Mr. Morrison, set the gallants again. Aye, sir. All right, you men, up aloft to set the gallants again. Any excuse to retard our progress, eh, Mr. Christian? But you wrong me, sir, if you believe that I would willfully obstruct our progress. Come now. Why don't you admit you wouldn't lift a finger to speed it? But that's absurd, sir. Why should I not wish to do my best? Because you are the sort of self-styled gentleman who thinks only one thought. You feel only one emotion. Contempt. Contempt for effort. For ambition. 
For anyone born less fortunate than yourself, you are poisoned with contempt, Mr. Christian. And it makes you useless to me. But I assure you, sir, that the execution of my duties is entirely unaffected by my private opinion of you. Be certain of that, Mr. Christian. Be most entirely certain. And ho! All right, well, let's switch gears into the infamous 1962 version, a movie that Marlon Brando, he turned down Lawrence of Arabia and Cleopatra to do this, and Marlon Brando was one of the biggest movie stars in the world, and he behaved as such on this <laughs> uh, ill-fated production, which some say it broke even, some say it lost millions, but went over schedule, went over budget. Before we get to all the behind-the-scenes chaos, of which there was plenty, let's just talk about it as a movie. Because you mentioned before that you really like Marlon Brando's interpretation of the character. Like For me, the moment I heard him speak a sentence, I was like, oh my God. I've got to listen to him do this for like three hours? It's a three-hour movie? It's like, is this going to be either unintentionally hysterical or unendurable? And apparently on the night of the premiere, a lot of people had a similar reaction where he started speaking and they just started laughing or leaving the theater and Marlon Brando was horrified. But... And give us the positive point of view first. Well, those people were used to him in Guys and Dolls, right? Like, and, and that was... The, or like on the waterfront. And on the like waterfront, street, right. Street and, Desire. He was already a verbal, uh, a sort of like contortionist already, you know, doing the sort of mooky, the mook accent and all that stuff. Um, yeah, uh, Streetcar Named Desire. He was a very emotive, weird, feely performer to begin with. I don't know how you can claim to be shocked by this. I don't think the, th I don't think the sound is ridiculous. Then again, we get the beauty of like 60 years or so since this movie came out so there's a lot of distance so we just get to look at it as an artifact but yeah i had not seen this again until i did my bounty homework and then i've watched it a few times since then again once for my video once to refresh for this yeah i liked it even more the second time it has look it's it cranks up you got the mgm logo and it cranks up with that old school overture it stays black for a while and then overture comes on it's like yeah, this it's has that, that david that lean old-fashioned yeah i'll shot an ultra panavision 70 in Technicolor, like if you like those late or late fifties, early sixties historical epic extravaganzas, this is it. There's a difference between a long movie and a difference between a big movie. For me, because I know remembering what it looked like when my parents were watching Reds in the eighties, and that was two VHS tapes and intermission, or when they would put Gone with the Wind on TV, and the same thing. It had the intermission and with commercials would play for like six hours over and over. Yeah, <laughs> if they yeah they wouldn't cut it down. But the the size it was grandiloquence and it was um, importance. It was grandeur. Like this is prestige not drama, it was prestige drama, which Hollywood no longer makes yeah and I'm, and the thing is this movie loses its slack the three hours is a lot especially the rest of them got it done in about two hours and this one goes the extra hour and that i would say the the overture and that that's maybe about maybe eight or nine minutes of film is not f movie but they gave it all the room in the world and this they had an enormous cast the color is beautiful on this thing uh like i said the alt was it ultra panavision ultra panavision 70 yeah it's it's gorgeous right it's, shot in 70 that's yeah. it's insane and every single bit of it that that long thin wide frame is is is, is beautiful it has all the production value it has a really good looking boat shot in location a lot more of it was shot in, in tahiti uh out in, in the french polynesia um and, and strangely more chaste than the 1935 version like all the girls very strategically have like their hair pinned yeah. down over their boobs and i was like all right this is the end of the hollywood production code but it's not the late 60s yet no, so yeah no. it, it feels very 50s in terms of its yeah. depiction of sexuality yeah in fact none of the women barely have any lines too it's like they're all accessory if, if there is a woman it's because they're a romantic accessory they're yeah. sort of handed out as if they 
were like lays. Here you can do the island. Here's the flowers on your neck, and here's a, a brown bride. Whereas the of 30s some sort. has like those like long scenes on the beach with like Clark Gable and his buddy like kind of gazing up on them. Like they're simple and they're kind yet yeah. regal. And, you like, couldn't oh, quite get away with that kind yeah. of lane. Yeah, but this this um I mean there's more psychology, but this is just a bigger. It's a longer movie. And it adds a few more characters. You get a few more points of view. And that's the weird thing about this one is that the movie is from the vantage point of the the gardener, the horticulturist, which in the first movie, I barely remember registering, oh, who the fuck was the guy that was supposed to be there attending the greenhouse? Because he kind of bopped in and out. And the same thing with the bounty. It's like, oh, there's a... you know they're all going to get thrown out the window anyway. So it's like, who gives a shit? (laughs) 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 Those trees aren't going to last. Yeah, that's right. They're not going to go. They don't make it to the, the final scene. But this movie, like you... The way the first movie was this young naive on the boat, who um, his this man by him, who essentially was a a confabbed version of a real man named Haywood, who does appear in these other two movies. They name him the correct name. It was essentially supposed to be a young man's view of it. Uh, and this one, there is a young man named Haywood, but the movie is from the vantage point of an outsider, a man who's not a sailor, who's coming on and sort of seeing everything. And so there is a voiceover in some parts from the journal of the gardener, who is observing what people's behaviors are. And again, harsh. Violence, the sort of dyspepsia of the captain, uh, the way in which seamen and and navigators and mariners do their business is alien to him. And so he's sort of trying to navigate this world. Um, You know, in a way, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment because he sides with the mutineers at the end, the sort of righteousness of the mutineers. Even though he's not a sailor, you can see it's like, no, it's clear in this case, there's a bad guy and there's a good guy and justice and righteous humanity will, will come out in the end. And so, um, you know, this movie really posits the, the, you know, not that Clark Gable wasn't a hero, but um, Marlon Brando is really given the hero treatment in this movie for sure. Like, and Trevor Howard's captain. Trevor Howard, by the way, plays. We haven't mentioned that yet. Trevor Howard plays Bly in this one. And he's only forty nine, but he looks eighty nine. That's insane, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's barely older than we are. This like is our <laughs> grandfather. But Trevor Howard, you look at him in movies like The Third Man, not that much like earlier, or you watch like Brief I Encounter. I remember him in that. And you're yeah. like. Oh, he's like, he's this like beautiful, stunning, dapper gentleman actor. And he's just incredible in the, in the forties. But by the time we get to 1962, this guy's been doing some hard drinking. The, all the acting chops are still there, but the skin is weathered and rugged. And yeah, he is, he's aging in dog years. And he's a great looking captain. I mean, this is a hell of a bly. I, I, mean, I have to, I obviously I've seen those movies, but I did not remember that was him in them. Um, and yeah, he stands to the toe. And whatever he's doing with his voice, if he was doing it, he sort of has a buzzsaw voice. It sort of sounds like this. And his, his you know, Captain Bly, as, as essayed by uh, Charlie Lawton, was this very sort of fat man who sounded like this coming from the glottis. <laughs> and, and Trevor Howard was, was like a very deep, almost like buzzsaw Lex Luthor delivery, where he sounds so much closer to the bone, so much more cruel, but cruel, almost like a fucking CEO. And I wrote in my notes that it's like he's running the ship like a really amoral, randian CEO. You know, everything's about efficiency. Everything's about speed. And um, he just didn't want to get skunked, and he wanted everyone to look at him like he was a, mar- a marketing speed, you yeah. know, marvel. He wanted to set records, get yes. there on time, save money, make money, etc. It's just, it's all about ironing out and removing any inefficiency imaginable. Yeah, and it's interesting because that's not necessarily, um, you, you know, Char- uh, Charlie Lawton is, is like giving into it, like almost like cruelty. There's a sagism to it, right? I'm, I'm dispensing cruelty. Actually, if anything, I would say... 
um, Lawton's Bly is the sense of he's obligated by his service to the crown and that is rewarded of itself. How could you possibly do something? It is England. It's the crown. And that Gable is rewarded calls him out on basically how he seems to enjoy watching men yes. debased suffer. and suffer. Yeah. He's not necessarily that big a fan of discipline unless it's in the service of making people feel less than human. Yeah. And so on and so forth. He just he loves ripping people down to their to their atomical structure. Yeah, de- 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 demolishing them just like yeah. on a radiation level. Just yeah, out of cruelty as opposed to like any actual sense of nobility re- regarding discipline, etc. Yeah, uh, uh Trevor Howard has a line in this movie. It's something like um Cruelty without purpose is inefficient, or efficiency, no, cruelty with purpose is efficiency, I think. Saying that I beat these men for their own good to keep the ship running. It is essentially the oil that keeps this motor running, is the fact that we need to be liberal with the lash and make sure everyone knows their place by fear, Mr. Christian. He said, what will keep those men going? Fear. And there's a great scene in the, in the, you know, when they're having dinner where he's essentially laying out how dispassionate he is about being cruel. He doesn't hate the men. He gets angry later on, but he has this real sort of liberal sense of beat the men because that's the way a ship runs. They're, they're just, he cuts their water off at the end. I mean, there's a lot of things this movie does that the other ones don't. He cuts their water off and says, the plants need the water because I need to come back with all 1,000. We can't lose a single one. So the men... Sh- nasty-ass trees need to survive the trip. <laughs> the, the men shall starve. The men shall parch. The men shall die. Um, I mean, the reality is, like, two guys died. But, again, the movies are much more... There's a bloodbath in the movies, which is better for the screen. We, we don't need to refer to the, the real-life thing again. Um, but his disregard for the for the life, that's and that's what really motivates... Um, there's a nice little, yeah, there's a little triangle here because, um, not a triangle, it's a nice little synthesis between getting back to Fletcher Christian for a minute. When he get, so Marlon Brando comes into the movie, I'd say 15 or so minutes in, you're meeting everybody on board, you see all the roughnecks, the sailors are talking to each other, and Richard Harris is having to talk about, I'll, t- I'll get that chest off the side and the cheese is on the ship. And Richard Harris is great. This is like his first. This is his big coming out party as an actor in movies. He's Mr. Mills. And he's in some ways the conscious of the movie, the conscience of the movie. And he negotiated hard and got third billing. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it was. This is before. uh, What's that? um, Lindsay Anderson film. Not my life as a sportsman. What the hell? It's a. I know it's early '60s Lindsay Anderson flick where he plays a soccer player. Right. I know what you're talking about. Do 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 do. The Sporting Life. The yeah. Sporting Life. Yeah, but, it's, but this is a year before The Sporting Life. Yeah, and um, so you meet all these other various and sundry sailors, and then uh, a wagon shows up, and this, this to me looks like a, a, an intentional wholesale creation from the brain of Marlon Brando. He creates this brocaded silver... Dandy fop with a maroon magenta. It was 100 his, his idea, <laughs> and he had a lot of ideas on this. A lot and of because ideas. he was a powerful star, pretty much every idea he had made it into the movie. Hey, Steve, I, I which mean, is from any standpoint, I feel like you're inviting ridicule and disaster. Every if you have a, this is the beginning of Marlon Brando going crazy. Yes. And it's also the beginning of him losing all of his commercial clout. So it's kind of the beginning of like a tailspin that doesn't get altered until The Godfather, Godfather. 10 years ten, later. You're right. You're talking about he, he not, not only the wheels came off, they fucking shot out with escape velocity out into a, a low orbit because he was just so ape, ape shit on this one. He fucked up and burned so many bridges. It was terrible that he had to be wandering through the wilderness for 10 years, pissed his reputation away. Well, this is the beginning of the situation where we see it happen again and again and later movies where you never hire Marlon Brando on a movie where he's going to get paid additional money if the movie experiences any delays 
like on not on the Dr. Moreau and on this because he will literally fuck with the movie and try to destroy it knowing he's going to get paid more yeah. and so he got like an extra million he got I think an extra $5,000 per day of delays so he would just be late to the set or insist upon doing lengthy rehearsals in the morning or just having like long script rewrites or suddenly reconceiving a, a scene at the last minute after it's already been like blocked and rehearsed anything and everything he could do to slow it down delay it wreck it because he was just going to get paid up the wazoo and the movie went way the hell over budget and you have carol reed one of the greatest actors ever the guy did third man getting fired because he wanted to not work he wanted marlon brando to be fired and like no sorry we're keeping marlon brando you're fired so he, <laughs> then they bring in lewis milestone who did like all quiet on the western front and things like that this is the know. last movie he made yeah, i think old, old as hell but he basically he could do nothing like apparently marlon brando would insist upon the crew not responding to cut unless he said it so lewis milestone would say cut and everybody would kind of keep going and then when Marlon Brando would kind of give him like the nod that it was over, like it, it's just it's chaos. I mean, it's just <laughs> bananas. And it's just when I when I when you want to look at movie stars guilty of the most horrific behavior imaginable, it blows my mind that he ever worked again after yeah. what he did to this movie. Yeah, I mean, but you can't you can't lose a guy like that. You know, the work that Brando did with Lumet and everything. It's like that's still in the mix. And obviously, he was ready for a hell of a seventies to come out of this too. Um, but you know everything you're saying. You're absolutely right. The the wholesale and alienating the cast. Yeah. Like he would put cotton in his ears so he, so couldn't, he couldn't hear, hear Trevor, Trevor Howard, Howard speak. Yeah. So you're alienating your co-star Richard Harris. By the end of the movie, wouldn't even agree to be in scenes with them. He he did a, the, the death scene of Marlon Brando. He can talk to this log. They were talking to logs <laughs> instead of each other. And Richard Harris skipped the premiere of the film. And yeah. this is like Richard Harris is starting his career, and he was so butthurt over his experiences with Marlon Brando. He's like, "Fuck it, I don't want anything yeah. to do with this movie." Yeah, he, he he turned out okay in the end. It was not not a bad decision by him. Um, but again, the wholesale creation, this fucking crazy quilt that Brando made, man, it is dynamite to watch. I get it that we're not in 62 anymore. I, I politely disagree. That's fine. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. I just so interested in this. Like at one point they're having an Americans argument. Americans can't do English accents. No. He and did. he's doing a, he's like a doing gentleman a, fop aristocratic snob. I mean, it, I, I think a stand-up comedian needs to watch this movie and just like create like a whole bit surrounding Marlon Brando trying to be an English aristocrat. It's like a train wreck in slow motion with like the heads and arms of children being thrown in all directions. It's like I couldn't believe how awful his accent because he's surrounded by English actual, actors, yeah. like actual guys who can do that accent. Welshmen, Irishmen, Englishmen, yeah. Yorkshiremen, everybody. It makes his accent all the more ridiculous. Whereas Clark Gable, who's like, fuck it, I'm not going to do an accent, yeah. then it, it works for me so much better. Yeah. I, you know, he just looks the part again. He's, and they kept saying that apparently he binge ate on the set. So his outfit, they kept he sewing split, it together. He kept splitting the seat of his pants like yeah. 40 or 50 times. This is the beginning of all of his bad behavior overeating, being late, like everything he did on Apocalypse Now, everything yeah. he did on uh, Island Dr. Moreau. It's just, all these horrible all these horrible habits start here yeah. Yeah. on this flick yeah it was so, it was such an indulgence it's almost like he decided to just put a hand grenade up everybody's ass and pull the pin it's kind of been crazy but again for whatever reason i it really it's almost like two different movies you got the movie outside of brando and then brando steps into his own movie like he knew the movie he was making in his head and here's you know here's something Again, the collision between this Danny Fop he created and Trevor Howard's character, again, this is not the truth, but you did have, he says, um, some of us 
Trevor Howard's Captain Bly says some of us can't rely on society connections to yeah, some it's degree. Lower class versus upper class. Yes, Bly has earned his position, whereas th- this version of, of Was, Marlon Brando's character, he's basically under the manor born. Yes, he's nobly so bleach. He's yeah. essentially this is this is what the remit of all wealthy people is: is to serve because you have the right to do so, and it's your responsibility. Yeah, it's expected of you. It's yeah. expected of you, and that part actually comes true. Um, the thing is, in the end, it's like you'd think that makes for a scrappy story for Trevor Howard's uh, Captain. Bly, but it's not because that's again you're almost assigning it to the wrong person um, because the the dandy guy who had the shit come to him is the bad guy. Yeah, if you want to do a story of like class versus class, yeah. they should have reversed their positions in society. <laughs> yes. But then Marlon Brando wouldn't have been able to be the fop, and that no. was his, that was his idea. Yeah. He, who I mean, you don't let actors contribute <laughs> ideas. I'm sorry, <laughs> unless unless you have like Daniel Day Lewis, who obviously has like a, a great rapport with Paul Thomas Anderson. They will kind of conceive characters together. But you really got to know who you're dealing with. Also, this is the beginning of Marlon Brando's fixation on Tahiti. Yep. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, so I'll tell the story in brief. But when he died, my boss Mike Metavoy, Phoenix Pictures, was the executive as a, as a state. Oh, had his books right, and his- we had, and part of his responsibilities was figuring out if Marlon Brando and all of his mad scribblings and all of his like napkins and diaries, if there are any screenplay ideas in there. And so I was one of the readers kind of going through this box of insanity of Marlon Brando's ramblings and almost every single story in there dealed with kind of a fat middle-aged white guy (laughs) living in like a Pacific Island environment, lording it over like the, uh, the primitives, like regarded as a God, you know, could fuck 10 times a day and like impregnating women by like by, by, by the like you know by the handful all right I know every story you write is a confession to a degree yes. we should try to disguise it some but this is the beginning of Marlon Brando's fantasies of like living like some giant albino god in the South Pacific in a huge muumuu yeah. just shambling Walking around walking around the muumuu acting like a fucking maniac and so yeah this is the beginning of I, I, I think I've decided after learning what I have about him on some of these movies that I might dislike him as a person in terms of his lack of professionalism more than any other actor in movie history. The lack of professionalism and the lack of respect for your fellow collaborators, your crewmen, people who have lives, wives, et cetera, who are ready to get back home, ready to do a good job. Like that lack of respect for the people on the set it just is awe-inspiring to me. You know, I'll take Brando and all over a robot like Tom Cruise and you can crucify me for that one but I'd rather yeah. have someone who's interesting and a human being rather than a freaking space alien I mean alien. When, when Tom Cruise dies and something like like a faceplate opens up and you see that actually it's just like a lot of circuitry West, yeah Joel Brenner's robot uh, yeah. from Westworld I would not blink no <laughs> exactly surprised. and he's the most professional guy in the world but it's like I yeah. don't need it if you don't resemble a human being and it's like yeah, yeah no it's true it's amazing I mean how did Brando I mean, you can count the great performances on one hand after this even. I mean, you're talking about two or three great movies in the 70s, certainly not that many in the 80s, and not really anything in the 90s either. Um, but yeah, maybe he, maybe he really did bridge on the River Kwai his own career by blowing up a bridge, just essentially cutting off his own uh, whole legacy despite his face. Who the fuck knows why he'd want to just freeze it in amber in 62 and then just have these weird shots of brilliance later on, but not any kind of consistency that would make you interested in what the guy has to say. Yeah, I guess it... The stories behind certain movies sometimes can be more fascinating than the movies themselves. And I was watching the movie and I was kind of enjoying it. And I see it has a lot of really vocal defenders who think it's one of the strongest versions of the story. And I didn't quite agree with that because I really like the 30s one. I really like the 80s one. But as I started reading the behind the scenes, my jaw just kept dropping lower and lower and lower. I couldn't believe. I mean, each story was just getting weirder than the next. I mean, I've got like three pages of just insanity of all the shit that he did. It's true. You should see this guy. He's yeah. got like a gigantic and like, document. Yeah. You, 
I would need days to to to, re, to relay all the bananas behavior that he indulged in while making this fucking movie. Yeah, I, and for some reason, I you know I, I'm not saying that the runtime of three hours zips right by. It doesn't. The back the back third. After the intermission is long, I think that's where the that's where essentially the the roots of the mutiny are right before the overture, uh, the intermezzo, intermezzo. After that comes back, then you're on this thing. But you know, the, the, one of the structural problems with these movies that it bifurcates is that you do lose the tension because all you have, you know, if you if your whole thing is Bly versus Fletcher, Christian, they're split, and you have the passage uh, back to Timor in in Indonesia for Captain Bly, and you have whatever they're going to make their story into fictionally. Although the ending of this one, we can, again, transfer out but here in a second. it feels like something made up by an actor. It's like, well, I want the movie to end with me having dying heroically, yes. trying to save the ship because it's on fire, and then I'll have a long death scene where I'll lie there looking fat and disgusting on the ground. And it's like, oh, clearly Marlon Brando wrote like the last 10 minutes of this movie. And for me, just it's like, I mean, to borrow a line from Dave Chappelle's latest comedy special, it's like someone leaving a giant fart in the elevator before they step out. Like, <laughs> it's Marlon Brando's like final fuck you to both the crew and the audience. The one thing that was neat about that is that like, if he wrote for himself, he was, um, they, because he brings up this plan to the mutineers, they get to pick Karen's Island. Uh, again, in all the movies they do. And um, he says to Richard Harris and the rest of these guys, he says, wait a second, I got an idea. And again, this is, I think, a total flight of fancy. What if we sailed back to England and actually gave witness against Captain Bly? Which is a very interesting plot twist. I thought that was great. So Richard Harris, his, his character Mills, is like, bullshit. It's like, yeah. there's no way. It's like, we have yeah. a parent. We can I'm live a on- peasant. You're going to stretch my neck. Yeah. yeah, you can live on coconuts here and pigs. And it's like, we got our little brown brides. And it's like, we're chill here, dude. We're not going yeah. anywhere. And so he goes, well, let's take the night to think about it. And that night, they burn it down. They, they, they commit barratry, as it were, which is arson at sea among the crimes. That's what it's called. Technically. Gotcha. All right. I like there it. You go. You, 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 of all the guests I've had on the podcast, <laughs> you, you whip out the big words. I do. And so, um, yeah, they said that, which you know, this is true. The bounty actually was burned. That, But, the you know, like the reality was they were trying to conceal it. You know, you, you send that thing to, you turn it to a box of ash and you send it to the bottom of the ocean. No one can find it. There's no trace you were there. This makes it into the sailors were saying, well, we're going to destroy our main means of egress as if there was any danger going back home brando's character jumps back on the boat suffers a severe injury they bring him on shore and he delivers a monologue under a blanket this is the part and i like milestone couldn't be bothered to direct it because he was so sick yeah. of brand at this point yeah. he's like fuck you I'm, I'm not doing it but the, the interesting thing was that they keep the camera is shot from chest down on the people around him they don't ever show you they intimate that something horrible happened to him as if you can almost see his insides and actually that's really good cinema it's really good storytelling in the mind that the people are referring they're looking at him he's, he's unconscious because he's got laudanum uh, going through his body they just essentially wanted to shut him off and the way that people are reacting to what they're looking at is more horrifying than actually seeing what the injuries were I thought that was effective filmmaking and then for that scene he's issuing essentially a monologue about what he hoped would happen apparently for that one he laid on a bed of ice cubes and he shivered through the entire scene it's like that's method acting yeah and they say he started turning blue certain times and yeah. he like to, had to take a break from the hey, ice hey man say yeah. what you want about how nutty he was that's a fucking brilliant idea that's off the hook I guess, but when I think about this and then I compare it to a movie from the the same year 1962 Lawrence of Arabia where you see Peter O'Toole perfectly cast delivering a fine performance and he's a, a relative unknown and it's really his big star making performance and I feel like that's like as good as you're going to get yeah. when it comes to early 60s historical epic filmmaking so I feel like that's the model to which you have to compare all other attempts at doing the historical epic you compare Cleopatra to that compare El Cid and Follow the Roman Empire all those movies Lawrence of Arabia reigns top that mountain 
I just think uh, that's a, a classic example of a vision perfectly realized. And then I compare it to Mutiny on the Bounty, and I, I know I will never watch this version again. I will probably revisit the 30s one a few times, mm-hmm. but I just, I, I can't separate my loathing for Marlon Brando's behavior and how it affected the final product. Because imagine if Carol Reed had stayed on from start to finish. And imagine if Marlon Brando had just talked like Brando. And imagine if, uh, imagine a million things, but it could have been something really special instead of this strange like historical curiosity. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I'll add this one little bit of trivia. This You mentioned that the replica of the bounty that was made for this movie sailed until recently in 2012 and was sank off the Carolina coast uh, by rough seas from Hurricane Sandy. There was a, there was an inquest, again, for this kind of thing, about negligence on behalf of the people, because it was a tourist vessel. Yeah, and a few people died. Get, it, get this, not only a few people died, one of them was a descendant of Fletcher Christian. I mean, that's... What's that all about? Yeah, that's, that's enough to make one become superstitious. <laughs> well, as I mentioned David Lean with Lawrence of Arabia. The next big version was almost a David Lean film. Robert yeah. Bolt, one of the finest screen, screenwriters who ever lived, Man for All Seasons, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, he's a world-class writer, brilliant. And he and David Lean were perfect collaborators. They tried for years and years and years to get the next big bounty production off the ground because in the early 70s, we have another book, another interpretation, which I think is a perfect segue into basically the reason we're here is to turn you loose on the 1984 bounty. Right. We will go about and run downwind for Africa and the Indian Ocean. Mr. Lamb? Here, sir. Uh, as soon as we have put about, it will be safe to light your galley fires again. Tonight I want as much hot mush as every man can eat. That's ready for the captain, lads. Hip hip! Hooray! 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 However, however, we are still faced with a long, hard voyage. I mean to make good use of every hour of sailing time. And to assist me in this, I'm replacing Mr. Fryer with Mr. Christian who will now act as executive second in command with the rank of acting second lieutenant. Mr. Fryer, come back here. Mr. Fryer, sir, come back here! We'll dismiss when I have done with you, sir. Do you hear me? This is an outrage. Mr. Fryer. In all my years at sea. Your years at sea? Good Lord, man. If I'd known your nature, I would not have accepted you as boatswain of a river barge. Must I suffer this before the... You will suffer my correction whenever you're at fault, sir. What fault? God damn your eyes, man! You turned your back on me! Oh, for that I apologize. Very well. But I protest. You protest, do you? I am master of the bank. And I, sir, am commander! By law! I am the first! Do you understand? God damn your height! And now you may dismiss, sir. All right, the whole point we're doing this podcast is because you had a very deep emotional response to the bounty from the 80s. And I'd never seen The Bounty prior to really? getting prepared for this episode. And I have to say, I was totally delighted by it. But it's one of those things where I, I remember seeing like the VHS. Somebody visited the set of Hannibal, Summer 2000. They're trying to get Anthony Hopkins to sign 
all the memorabilia they had related to Anthony Hopkins. And I remember seeing a VHS Chill cassette out, bro. Chill from the county, and I was like, what the fuck is that? And so I kind of totally disregarded it. And then you sent me this clip of Rob Brydon imitating scenes <laughs> from the bounty. I was like, well, that sounds funny as shit. I, I need to check this out. And then you pitched this episode, and yeah, I just I fell into it. But there's a, there's a lot to love about this flick. But for people out there who have not heard of nor seen the bounty, Give us the Bill Scurry pitch on what this movie's all about. Well, as something close to my heart, this is not the only financial fiasco that Dino De Laurentiis got involved with in 1984. Uh, he also made Dune that year, so I guess he took a bath in a number of occasions on gigantic foreign, you know, foreign shot, foreign... But if you're going to go down in flames, go down in flames like shooting for the moon. Like yeah, that. and that's what Dino did. Dino never, you know, he hit a big, risk taker. big footprints in the mud, and he left a lot of shit behind him. But yeah, he took big swings, big flying fucks, and a lot of rolling donuts, as Kurt Vonnegut used to say. Um, but this, I mean, this this is the, this is, this came out of um, the, essentially the legs and the leavings, the dregs, rather, and the leavings of... Um, David Lean's project, and apparently a lot of the things that they made this out of were bits and pieces that were there, whether it was building the boat, starting to think about principal photography, ideas about casting, parts of the script. Now, it wasn't written by the same guys, but I think it had a lot of DNA in common with the uh, the Lean version. So apparently, now, I think it's the stuff alleged, because at this point, Tony Hopkins, this is shot in 83, comes now, out in 84. was the 72 book written like, almost like as a rebuke against all the previous iterations of the story like y'all are getting it totally wrong there's a there's another side to this tale i think right but that's the, i think it was a moment a movement in history where first of all the original is a novel to begin with it's a fancy a flight yeah. of fancy historical fiction yeah. historical fiction this was a biography the one that this is based on i'll be honest i don't know a lot about it other than the fact that you do see the underpins of that book in this movie and why this movie is so much different so much drier so much more visceral and psychological um, I mean, it's it's the fusion of 1980 storytelling with all the influence of actors like Mel Gibson, who plays Fletcher Christian. And, and what's the, the score? Vangelis, how do you say Vangelis. it? Vangelis. Yeah. Vangelis, yeah. And they also did Dune, right? No, 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 that who was did Toto. Dune? Toto did Dune. Oh, gotcha. Was, what Vangelis had, was it Blade Runner? Chariots of Fire and Blade Chariots Runner. Chariots of Fire, gotcha. Yeah, sure. Vangelis, I mean, he, he was yeah. saying it's so strong. And he did, Vangelis did the score to uh, Ridley Scott's, what is it, 1492? That came out okay. in 89, too, on top of that. Yeah, there's something about mariner, o o sea-going, ocean-going mariners back in the day. Like these like weird, trance-like, futuristic scores. And, right, well, but that's they, they go together really well. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to clip it for the, for the purpose of social media, but the beginning of this movie, hearing Vangelis's, it's almost like a... a a pulse dom 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 and there's a weird like whistle over top very uh, almost like Giorgio Moroder's score for Scarface and I love digital and I know you've talked about that on the show many times with me I think Mackenzie I get the right Lambert this time he also likes that uh, he also likes that score I love that sense of the 80s they were doing a lot of experimental things with digital and they don't do that they yeah, a lot of synth pop yeah and they they you know but, but having the same effect as orchestral and they walked away from that quickly and I just think that's some of the most interesting stuff so that adds a tone to this because the whole thing is on the sea it's set in 1787 it's on a Polynesian island and yet it's this incredibly digital film score which complements it so much it's Agreed. an atmosphere yeah, you would think they would clash but there it's a perfect harmony perfect harmony I mean yeah. it's just it's such and it's wonderfully edited into this uh into the the movie too the sound editing and the way it's sort of built into the scenes and you know the, you know the way Vangelis he didn't just make songs they slapped on top but he scored it to these scenes and came up with a real wonderful synthesis between sound and image um, but it's directed by a guy named Roger Donaldson who is not the most um, he's like a journeyman guy he was an Australian he's not, not David Lean no he's not David Lean and um, the only thing I really knew him from I believe was uh, Species 
That's the first thing I've seen him do in 95, which was a total bag of shit. I mean, it's a bag of shit, but <laughs> it's a Martin Kessler favorite. And, I know. And, and I'm it's, not and trying it's got to. its moments. It's got a decent cast. It's got some hottie toddy sci-fi erotica in there. So Hell of a I, debut from Natasha Henstridge, yeah, for I sure. Yeah, I think Species is worth seeing. It is. I'm, I'm not trying to... I remember when I see it in 95. It is definitely a uh, an artifact from the, sci- the sci-fi alien monster boom of the mid-90s. Um, I think he may have directed Conan the Destroyer, I think. No, that was a Richard Fleischer. Richard, okay. Well, he was on board. He was he was in the discussions for it. So he, he was an Australian guy they brought in. Apparently, Gibson, I think, went to bat to get the Aussie in there. So Dino De Laurentiis... Like, I need one other raging alcoholic guy. Just so I don't look so bad. As many Australian <laughs> drunks as possible. Brian Trenchard-Smith was not available to shoot, so they got him instead. So I mean, I I think you do see that the actually you see the thumbprint of the of the director in this movie. I mean, he described himself as becoming a Bly character when he was making it. He became a rigid taskmaster. It's got a vision without a doubt. It's got a very yeah. clear vision. And the thing is, eighty four. That's the thing. This has a much more distinctive style than the sixty two. Yes. Far. Yeah. You that's yeah. You can tell it. It's like I almost wonder. Well, who was watching him do this? Is this because this doesn't feel? It feels in some ways like a Dino De Laurentiis movie, but it really has more to do with the director being the guy who makes it. And so the atmosphere is completely different from the two epic mainstream Hollywood versions of this that came beforehand uh, of 30 years and 20, 16 years or so before this, however long it was. I can't do math in my head. But um, it, it looks more like a psychological burning early 80s movie. And like for me, that's a sweet spot. Like this is this begins like Bill Scurry's. Uh, uh, erotic zone of like from 1978 <laughs> to like 84 you get to me some of the greatest movies and this is why it's I, the cool part of the 80s supposed to the cheesy part it is and this is why <laughs> like, this is why two three years ago I pitched Jimmy Woods to you because I think that so much of his sweet spot is in that like really interesting movies the kind that don't, mainstream movies with a lot of prestige and credibility well, they, they kind of feel like 70s movies but with like 80s actors with 80s music and it's a weird transition point but I, I, I love that their early 80s sensibility yeah. and I, I get very nostalgic about that period I have zero nostalgia for the for the late 80s which is like for me just like ugly hairdos and gaudy clothes and yeah i mean it's like i after a while you just make police academy police's academy i don't know how it's the plural of the movie but i saw many of them in the theater especially when they started inviting like the the bones brigade to to, to participate i was like (laughs) yeah skate or die fuck yeah but a movie like this i know it was slept on i know that people either it was kind of a bomb when it came out the funny thing is it's like you can go down the list this is one of those films like Dune was, like Krull in 83, for instance, um, you saw these movies where the cast was a triple A Royal Shakespeare team. Company. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, these yeah. are before, like when you watch Dune, you see... Or Excalibur, like, we're just yes. going to grab the finest actors that no one's ever heard of, but you're going to hear about them a lot in the years to come. And it's like, there's no way to know that you have essentially the triple, you have the all-star team working for you there. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis in his first high-profile movie. insane. You got fucking Liam Neeson in there. Daniel Day-Lewis, when he was doing studio work, he was just picking character roles that were off, and he's fucking fiery. He's he's dramatic. He never eats the scene. He doesn't chew any of it. He just does his work beautifully in yeah. a small role. And a lot of it's non-speaking, a lot of it's reactions too. Yeah, just him like, glowering and stewing in anger. And I mean, this is, what is it the next year he would make my uh my beautiful lingerie and stuff like that like he was right on the cusp of, of but it's like way before like uh um, my left foot yeah it was way before he really popped. Yeah. yeah right i mean it's just it was that's the thing it was like what would daniel day lewis's life had been like if he just did character roles for a couple more years rather than transitioning to a set of acting titan and but this is a hint you will see something in this film with him mixing with an ensemble cast that you don't see anywhere else and not only that you got one of the first roles i mean i was i, I 
mentioned Crawl. Liam Neeson, I think, was was in Crawl, and he's in this, and, it's and he's in Excalibur as Gawain. He's in Excalibur, yeah. right? And it's like he's a big. The Queen is innocent. He's a big, tall. Uh, a you know brutish Irishman. There's something that's like I don't think of him as. No, he's a murderous thug in this. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think if I think of him as this graceful Oscar Schindler type Qui Gon Jin guy who the rest of other than the fucking you know Taken movies. I will find you. I have this, this very specific set of skills, and it's like, but I remember him being dignified and dapper and gentlemanly and, and all that, and even Dark Man. There was something decent about him. And or it's like, like uh, husbands and wives. Woody yeah, Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 And this is a time in his career where he was really getting into playing sons of bitches and he was good at it and he doesn't really continue with that later it, it you know it crystallizes a lot of these things and it, but you know here's my point i feel like with this movie this is the undiscovered tony hopkins because anthony hopkins is another english legend welsh sorry welsh legend and um had a strange career in the 70s i have to admit i haven't seen magic is killer magic but, is insane but i've i've seen very little of his 70s album yeah. magic is such a beautiful little horror gem from the 70s that you get and margaret Topless, hanging out in bed with Tony Hopkins, like, where can you go wrong? But Burgess Meredith, but yeah, killer yeah. little horror flick. That's weird because it's it's based on a Jewish, like, Catskills type thing. And, and it's like, well, he's not, I think he's playing a Jew, and it's sort of strange in that this Welshman putting, he does a decent job. Well, later on, he played Nixon, was it even stranger? That's true. It was a little strange. That was even more of a burlesque, too. But Anthony Hopkins, we, I, I think we sort of take it that he almost like, was created sponta- spontaneously out of the core of the earth to do Hannibal. Uh, I mean, to, to do Hannibal Lecter, I'm saying. Yeah. So a lot of us aren't familiar with him. And t- I mean, he makes a bunch of little movies. I mean, like Lion and Winner and things like that. He plays uh, Richard the Lionheart and things yeah. like that. Like he's, he's all over the place. So this is a time where you have Tony Hopkins um, is at the beginning of his career to some degree, even though he'd been working for years and years and years. And people forget that um, he wasn't just born spontaneously out of the universe to play Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, even though that's when pretty much everyone met the guy. He was more or less unknown. I mean, I hadn't seen him beforehand. I mean, that movie came and, out when I was he won an Oscar and he was boom. That's he, it. Yeah, he, he living was legend. Arguably one of the, yeah, one movie kind of makes him, that's it, turns his career. That's insane, even though he kept working. And you mentioned Magic was a great movie. Hell, hell of a psychological thriller about potentially killer marionette dummy. Like very weird, and he gets into it. He compl- and said Anne Margaret's in it, and all, and all that stuff. So it's, hot, yeah, very hot. It's and it's a great movie. And he was in the Elephant Man. I mean, you know, brilliant, yeah, brilliant, exactly. But it wasn't his movie. And it's a very soft, quiet, yes, performance, and he's yeah. crying. And he was in a movie called Eighty Four Charing Cross Road, which came out in eighty five with Anne Bancroft. Um, you know, it's weird. I read for this that he was a raging alcoholic in the 70s, and he completely, like, lost. He had lo- he became a teetotaler. Yeah. Yeah, right. He got, he dried out. Like, On the set of Hannibal, he and his stand-in were both recovering alcoholics, and they would sit around, and when they were, during their downtime, they would sing all these, like, drunken body, like, pub songs from their <laughs> days of drinking, just kind of reminiscing about how much fun it used to be to be, wow. be just raging alcoholics. So oh, they'd sing awesome. all these lurid songs, but they were totally sober as they did it. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. There, there's a real rigorousness to this, and this is why. I kind of feel like if you're looking for the Anthony Hopkins that you get to know and the one that becomes a legend, it's born in this movie. If you are at all an Anthony Hopkins fan, and I think we all kind of miss the fact that there aren't a great... He's a fantastic actor, but he's not given us a lot to work with because he's made a lot of... like Odin? Come on. <laughs> he gave, I mean, Westworld, he was great. You know, it's Fuck like, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. He gave us, a, But he gave us a lot of termite art throughout the 90s. Like, after Sound Slams, he doesn't do a good job of picking projects. He He's great in things, but the movies aren't great. 
And he becomes a star. And he, he starts appearing star. He starts appearing in a lot of vehicles, not all of which were created equal. I mean, yeah. How many times are you going to watch Free Jack or World's Fastest Indian? Dude, I, yeah, I saw Free Jack in the fucking theater. And I love how it pops up in uh, True Romance for like five seconds mm-hmm. on the screen. Like, that's fucking... Fr- he knew that. such a weird-ass movie to show up in, like, in the background. But Yeah, I couldn't tell you how many... He made the he made the um, David Mamet movie, The Edge. Uh, came out in 99 yep. or 2000. I thought that was uh, Lee Tamahori. And Mamet wrote it. Oh, remember, got it, got, got you. Okay, yeah, yeah, Lee Tamahori directed it, I, th- I think. Yeah, right. And that was based on, that was a People weird. People love that flick. It's yeah. weird, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a very, you know, the, this seeing a script, like a movie shot in the Alaskan wilderness where he plays this um, very, um, he's a millionaire, sort of weird guy. And, he's and very resourceful. He's very resourceful. That's the thing. He's yeah, survived. it was Lee Tamahori, but yeah, Ripma David Mamet. Yeah, 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 but yeah, it's him chewing the scenery with Alec Baldwin. And yeah. they're both great. I mean, it's essentially a tete-a-tete between the two of them. Yeah, that, if you haven't seen The Edge, it's another weird movie. But again, Lee Tamahori, kind of forgotten director. But, yeah. Uh, he, 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 Once were Warriors, he, he was right? hot for, I mean, Once for Warriors is fucking dope as shit. Yeah, you talked about it on the required show. Required viewing. He'd had a, he had a pretty weird episode of The Sopranos, too. Of all things, he did an episode along he the way. Busted yes. like on Suns like Santa Monica Boulevard, Picking you know, like a, dressed dressed like a tart and things like that. Yeah. Like he had a, a before everybody was like, you know, fuck whoever you want. Like prior to everybody kind of becoming more laid back about that, he was a pretty openly curious, kind of flamboyant guy who yeah. like would fuck anything that moves. Yeah. Well and, it was yeah. it was open air sex trade, so yeah. I think that's why they busted him more so yeah. than any sort of weird you know, it was indecency more than anything perverse or yeah. But it's, um, I don't know how we got to talking about that, but oh, oh, Tony Hopkins, Hopkins yeah. yeah. So Hopkins in this movie is, I mean, it is a rapture. I think you can sit back, and this is a two-hour, like, three-minute running time. Every single minute where he's on the screen, he is focused like a laser, dialed into the performance. There is something where he just absolutely ate the script, let it come out of his pores. It, it smells all over him like garlic. He just understands what they need him to do. And this is the best, this is the best bligh. This is one of the best performances I think he's ever given in his career. And the funny thing is no one was watching. He did, they didn't catch him doing this. If this was his audition tape, for Hannibal Lecter, you know, he goes the opposite direction of reining in and being a sort of being very quiet, little, yeah. little snake and say, yeah. you know, a guy behind the, the mist, mist, you know, the, oh, do you hear the, do you hear the lambs, Clarice? And he's doing a very different thing here where he's volcanic, but it's not like William Shatner volcanic. It's not a farce. Or even the kind of silly scene where Mel Gibson tries to be volcanic and you're I like, I am in hell. But it's like, don't do that when you're next yeah. to a really good actor because you look like an idiot. I'm sorry. Like I, I love Mel Gibson. I've seen a billion Mel Gibson yeah. movies. But there's a scene where he cuts loose in this and it seems so amateur and childish yeah. because you've been watching... The, the master, ma- the master, do his thing for two straight hours. And, right, that's the thing. It's, I mean, Mel Gibson was really wet behind the ears. Like this is um, what pre lethal weapon, pre lethal weapon. But it's like by this or point, post, he, post Mad Max, he yeah. just came at it right. Well, it was post Road Warrior was eighty one. Mad Max was what seventy nine or something. Yeah, um, yeah. And he made just a couple of small podunk movies. This was his big shot. And again, these were not because this movie had a bunch of iterations, a lot of false starts between David Lean and whatnot. The two people who they were considering hiring apparently were Christopher Reeve and the, well, he would have had to do an English accent which would have been weird but Oliver Reed was supposed to be Bly now that he would have crushed it I would have crushed it yeah. I can imagine what that would have been like well if you it, think about him doing like, you know, like in The Brood where he's doing that very crisp proper <laughs> quiet way of speaking it's very similar to Anthony Hopkins in Sounds of the Lambs yeah. but when he wants to be volcanic Goddamn, Oliver no, can be volcanic. Even if, you, if you see like burnt offerings, where he and he never of, gave up the sauce. He drank till the bitter oh, yeah, end. Yeah. He was like, "Fuck I mean, that retiring from booze, and I'm going to drink till the day no, I I'm die." No, I'm sure he when he hit the ground, the the, the hand, the bottle smashed out of his hand too as but he died. He was a professional. He was never late. He nope. knew his lines. He was a perfect gentleman. He like would, the 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 actress who plays the girl with all the 
things coming out of her in the brood. Says Samantha he was Egger, yeah. gentle as a kitten yeah. during the day, but at night, get out of the way. Yeah, yeah, right. You don't want to be there when it's ugly. When, it's getting, either, when the monster comes out, you don't want to yeah, be there for that too. He's walking up a, a dark alleyway with like a, a blade in his hand, like looking for, <laughs> looking for trouble. <laughs> Sandy, how much trouble can you get in Toronto? We have to yeah. ask Martin about that. But yeah, so uh, they, right, they would have killed it. But it's like nice thing is, is that Mel Gibson might not. He may be the believe it or not, he may be the softest. Even with, even with uh, the the shenanigans that uh, that Brando pulled, you know, Mel Gibson is no Brando, especially now. He's a young guy. Again, he's pretty. He's young, and the, and the fact that this movie, yeah. whereas for me, you believe the relationship on the island. That's it, yeah. right? I, I think that this has a very heated, overheated. Like you could do feel the heat. No, the nice thing about this movie is that everyone's fucking sweating the whole time, and obviously they hit them with glycerin. What is it? Glycerin was the movie sweat. It's like they soak these guys. If they're in the office wearing those heavy, they're having dinner with those big woolen jackets in an airless chamber and they are sweating and it's like you feel the heat and it's and it's a metaphor and it's real and it's like i love that the trap like make make us sweat make us see the characters in distress the whole time um and so the thing is what else is overheated is mel gibson's passion mel gibson's fire inside of him what he does really well is make moony eyes with a half naked tahitian who's hot is fucking Hot balls. As balls, man. Yeah. It's like that's the shit. Now and I mentioned this to my dad the other day. When I was down in Virginia. And he was like, "Oh my god!" He's like, "The girl in the bounty." Like, and he yes. hadn't seen it since '84. But even like here we are, what 35 years later, my dad was still no. kind of like sw- sweating over it. <laughs> She's a non-actor and it yeah. ages very well. There's a shot. It's like you want to talk about Hollywood 101, and Roger Donaldson gets it. The the two of them in the water, and you no, know, it's like a shot from a low angle, and they're splashing. They're coming out of the water, and her hair is slicked back, and she's topless, and his, and he he's muscular and covered with water, and that orange sun is behind them, creating that corona. It's like that's how you shoot passion. That's the 1984 description of when you did lurid, you know, unrestrained emotions, and almost like a you know, it quasi romantic, but also a sort of gritty way. It's all there, and that's the beauty of this movie. Is that you add volcanically fiery Anthony Hopkins with his gritty psychological, completely lived-in um, performance? Mel Gibson may be a younger cipher a little bit, sort of getting his sea legs, as it were. To- oh, yeah. But Hopkins is also kind of terrified of the sex. At one point, he's yes. basically called upon to make love to one of the daughters of the chief, and he invents an excuse for Mel Gibson to come down and yeah. pull him out of it. He's almost kind of terrified to go through with it. Yeah, and that was that was a real thing. Apparently, the real bl- the real Bly was this abstemious, chaste man who just right was in- totally intimidated. There is a sequence in this movie that is fascinating. It is about two thirds of the way through. It's another edited sequence. You want to talk about great. A great moment, whereas you get that the quick cut from the original one where it looks Russian, it looks Soviet. There's a great 1980s sort of almost like French influenced um, thing. I, I called it. I'm going to put the clip on social media too. It's like I call it the, the temptation of Fletcher Christian, where this camera slowly zooms in on. Um, Captain Bly's face as he's in bed sweating and he's racked with images of him thinking about Fletcher Christian becoming native and he's tossing and turning in bed getting on these like Maori tattoos and oh, things on it's great and it's like and, and Van Gelis's score is pounding dong 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 as like his worst nightmare is that he's losing his friend everything's going to shit the whole and he's, this is where the paranoia you want to see the filmmaking you, you the filmmaking of watching somebody's paranoia you're actually spelling it out you like he's doing the work you see it in his face Anthony Hopkins is writing a text in human disaster but then the filmmaking is giving you this wonderfully presentational um, well-edited scene of saying this is where it turns your mutiny is born two-thirds because it's it's happening inside of his head he's losing his grip on reality and he becomes cruel and that is what hues to the second version of the book the more psychological 
uh, telling of the thing, something a little more honest, but it makes for a better movie. And again, no matter how raw or unformed Mel Gibson may be, he's actually perfect in the role. You want a guy who looks like he's going to make googly eyes and it's just going to act on passion? He does it and like you let Tony Hopkins do the heavy lifting. Yeah. And he does every single pound of it. So... Do you want to uh, do a recreation of the notorious scene between Daniel Day-Lewis and Anthony <laughs> Hopkins? Or, because I think you need to elaborate a little bit on that scene because if you want, I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis, for me, that's his big moment where he basically yeah. gets pissed that he's basically being demoted and that Mel Gibson's being promoted and Anthony Hopkins basically doesn't want him to like to walk away from him while, while he's talking to him. <laughs> but Hopkins goes batshit and he is completely bizarre. It's great. Damn your eyes, damn your hide. I mean, just he damns everything about him. But it's when you watch it, you're like, this is why we watch yeah. these historical prestige dramas for moments like these. And it just, it wounds my soul that Hollywood has decided they no longer want to do kind of these, it's a weird thing where they will still make Oscar bait, but they don't do Oscar bait on a grand scale, the big budget. Like they don't yeah. make the $200 million Oscar no, bait. It's, it's A24 and it's Annapurna. That's yeah, the kind of thing that, you get. And we talked a bit about this with the uh, our soon to be released short film, and we visit locations around New York. But like The Godfather, it's a prestige film and a blockbuster all in one, and it's it's a truly a lost art form at this point. And it makes me sad because when you get that combination of prestige and commerce all in one, it's what makes a movie like a genuine, bona fide, crowd pleasing classic. Yeah, um, and and particularly you, you, that scene is something. I, I, again, you bring up. Daniel Day-Lewis, when he's being an ensemble guy, he's a member of the cast, he's a young neophyte guy trying to make his bones, and Anthony Hopkins is making his first stabs. That's maybe the backstory, the background of it, but that scene is the fucking indignity in Daniel Day-Lewis's eyes as he just sort of sucks his cheeks in and his eyes fill with this, this impunity and he just is so angered and he, he does, he turns around and walks out the room and Tony Hopkins unleashes the torrent of life, <laughs> Mr. Fryer, down your eyes, turn your back on me, man! Yeah. Curse your hide! It's, I mean, it's beautiful. I had to copy and paste from, uh, from IMDb like dialogue or whatever the entire exchange. And it's a long, long exchange. Yeah. It's a great long I would scene. not have accepted you if I'd known your character. You're a coward, Mr. Fryer. He says something like, I would not Make you the bosun of a river scout. What is it? A river barge. Yeah, let's see. Yes. I've got it. Uh, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Look at it. Yeah, he says, good Lord, man. If I'd known your nature, <laughs> I would not accept you as a boatswain of a river barge. He's like, must I suffer this before the men? You will suffer my correction whenever you're at fault, sir. Like, it just goes on and on and on. They're like, what fault? God damn your eyes, man. You turned your back on me. <laughs> it just... I, whoever wrote that must have been having the time of their life just creating this exchange. And we imagine an actor and like they're handing you like your like your your your, your pages for the next day. Yes, we're gonna you, have so much fucking fun on the set. I mean, tomorrow. there's there's words on the page. This is the thing. I I mean, this is why we love filmmaking and any even taking some filmmaking classes and the bit of it that I've done myself, I know what words on a page look like. We've all read scripts, we've listened to actors, we've even read them aloud ourselves, just sounding it out. There's a difference between Actually, someone typing, whether it's uh, like the, 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 the keys of a typewriter pounding a piece of vellum paper or it comes out of an inkjet printer, it's words on a page. That's bullshit. There's nothing to it. doesn't fucking matter if it was Patichayevsky or if it was Adrian Lyne or whomever or Tommy Wiseau. Or it's, Marlon Brando making up scenes on the fly. Scene. The difference is it's like this is one of those things, these stories I loved hearing about Bobby Duvall. And what he would do, Duvall would get his big script and he would refer to it like a Bible. And his script was completely soaked in pen because he wrote everywhere on that. The marginalia was him 
breaking down each syllable, eating it, digesting it, becoming one with it, wondering what was this character doing 10 years ago? What is he doing 15 years from now? And you understand the difference between actors who read movie stars, things like that, read lines. Or actors who are capable of reading it all. Because I guarantee you there are plenty yeah. of them out there yeah. who have their assistant read it to them. <laughs> yes, you're right. And maybe even Tony Hopkins may do that now. He may have gotten lazy. You know, so, you know Tony Hopkins did the same I thing. I guarantee you didn't read the scripts of the Marvel movies. He's like, fuck it. I'll do it. Yeah. And he <laughs> Although he did have fun, apparently, in Dark World, which is a terrible movie, but when he learned that Tom Hiddleston was playing Coriolanus on the London stage, because he played Coriolanus at one point as well, and so they bonded over their oh. interpretations of the character Coriolanus, which I actually read recently because I'm a total snob, because uh, my lady friend took me to see it as Shakespeare in the Park. And we saw Coriolanus, dynamite Shakespeare play, really under But if you just want a, a story about a warrior being a badass warrior, Coriolanus is your, is your money shot. But That's yeah, but Anthony Hopkins apparently killed it many mm -hmm. years ago. And so it's like Tony Hopkins takes the writing. The reason why we're talking about it so breathlessly now is because the power invested. You're talking about that's. I don't care who wrote this movie. You, I'm, who, you watch that, and that's like that's a guy just coming up with that out of the biggest honesty in the world. It's like that it, it erupted from him. His indignity, Mister Fryer, turn your back on me, man. And it's like you believe every single second, every single syllable of that. And it's like reverse engineer that. You have a movie wide performance where there's not a false note. And, you, and it's like he doesn't have to talk sometimes. You just watch what he does, and it's a fully realized performance. That's why this movie gets me so excited. It's the synthesis of so many great things, and the beauty of it is there are so few surprises left over for films. We can sit here and change. Uh, I mean, we can we can sit here and exchange the swimmer back and forth. And I love when that became a thing. It's like I start watching it because because Kessler started talking about it, and then you start talking about it, and then everyone winds up. It's like, oh shit, this is great. I'm so glad we revisited this because we slept on it for the longest time. And I know that some people have seen The Bounty, but not nearly as many have seen it as would love it, I, I think, mean, if they I did. I mean, I fancy myself a bit of a movie buff, and here I am, 43. I had never seen it. So. Yeah. I mean, and there's just there's, there's, there are very few of them like this, as far as I know, but every now and then, someone's going to come and whack you with well, a cricket bat over the head. bring full circle back to the beginning, we're talking about like, Tarantino went on that deep dive through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, looking for the undiscovered gems, the undiscovered auteurs, because he felt like film history was incomplete when it came to identifying the great yeah. auteurs. And he's like, I know there are other guys out there that have not already been talked about ad nauseum by all the great, you know, uh, all the great, like Andrew Saris is out there. You do, there, there's always more to discover. The Danny Perry's of the world doing that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, finding the modern canon of stuff that gets and forgotten. even if something has been discussed to death, like you take like some like, take Casablanca, something that's been discussed a million times over. I, I listened to this fascinating podcast recently with Neil Gaiman, and he was talking about the reason why he wrote his book on Norse mythology, which ended up becoming the surprise runaway bestseller. He sold like 15 million copies. He's like, God damn, if I had known that, I would have written it much earlier. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of retired younger. He's like, these stories have been told so many times before. Like, is there anything new to be discovered? He's, yeah. and he, but his justification was, tell it in your own voice, in your own way, discuss, discuss it in your own way. And if you have a new take on Casablanca or a new idea about it, then it's perfectly justifiable to take a crack at Casablanca. But it is a, a, a rare pleasure and a rare joy when you've come across these undiscovered gems or gems that have not been discussed to death. I doubt there's ever been a podcast ever about the 1984 The Bounties. So you may it, be right. Yeah, it is fun when you make these fresh discoveries, even if it was perhaps abundantly clear to people back in 1984 this movie was killer, just didn't get... Adequately, adequately discovered at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that I'm I'm kind of, look, I, I'm a like a red meat actor guy. I like these, this is exactly my kind of overheated thing, a manly masculine, manly man movie about men. That kind of stuff is my one of my favorite things. So, you know, like I saw Master and Commander before I saw this, and Master Commander's, I mean, do you know a single person? Yeah, who doesn't like that movie? Well, 
once again, I'd never seen it prior to doing my episode. Nick Barry came on. We did an episode about Master Commander. I was like, God damn, like, why have I not fucking seen this movie? It's fucking killer. And I, 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 oh, oh, Mr. Tech is calling Bill right Tech now. Bill Tech is calling me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, quick, quick shout out to Bill Tech on the podcast because uh, Scurry Tech and I got together a couple weeks ago to do a little short film around New York, visiting locations and talking about them. And Mr. Tech sent me his rough assembly last night. And I just want to give you a little tease in advance. I, my, my face was hurting from smiling so broadly. I had a kind of a small little tiny five minute short in mind and he gave me this like 20 minute, uh, we, we'll probably cut it down to like 15, but he gave me much more than what I asked for. So Bill Tech, if you're listening, thank you sir for giving me champagne for the price of beer. He is, he's a, he's a grown up, he's a man, speaking of manly men, masculine manly men. Absolutely. He's, he's definitely a John Houston character as he would tell you himself, but um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't praise this movie enough. I really love it. I'm in the tank for it. I've kind of become a cultist about it. But I rarely, I mean, no one wants to watch a movie about Mariners, I guess. It's a hard sell. I mean, it's just like, you know, something about it. Yeah, it's like certain genres come and yeah, go out of fashion. Yep. Like swashbuckling adventure stories. This is not a swashbuckler, but anytime you're dealing with things from a long time ago, how do you make it feel fresh? Like when Michael Mann made Last of the Mohicans, he made it feel modern and fresh, yeah. but it could have just as easily felt stale and rigid, like history under glass. And you're like, Ugh, like no thank you. But some directors have that ability to just, just breathe some fresh life into these kind of tired old genres. Or you get one, you know, a guy who this is his big shot. Again, I'm not saying, I don't know if Roger Donaldson's got a long career, but it's a journeyman career. Let's say this is his biggest shot, his biggest swing at it. And he gets it right. But, you know, he, he can't replicate this again. And there have been very few sort of maritime movies. I mean, the tone of Master and Commander, I don't want to, if anyone hasn't seen it. I mean, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies are obviously hit, but I would never call those maritime movies because no. they're just, they might as well be like Marvel movies. Like, they are. They're, they're yeah. just, they're, it's supernatural creatures and superheroes, etc. Yeah, I mean, it just happens to take place on a boat and there's powder yeah. wigs and stuff like that. But it, yeah. it's costumes and monsters. Yeah, and it's written by a couple of hacks. Yeah. Rossio and whoever, the other two, yeah, the two guys who wrote But clearly this. people will show up to see people on a boat if you give them an incentive to do so yeah and again i'm not so much worried about what people will or will not see i i like the idea that hopefully it's going to boomerang back at me someday that someone's going to say here's a movie that they made in 78 that you've never seen before and it's like holy shit where has this thing been i mean that's what we're doing here on film twitter all the, all the nerds a bunch of us is like we are trying to discover we're trying to not out fox but we really are trying to impress at least one other person with something to say i made your life one movie better let's say we die let's say the fossil record you know indicates our bones are somewhere in the sky you know we both become oil and it's like if i could have made one person just watch one thing that made their life another one of their classics one of their bona fide classics then i probably did my job as a human being yeah it, it's definitely one of the things that puts the biggest smile on my face when someone says hey listen to your episode i checked out blah 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 and i thought it was fucking cool i'm like all right well then the podcast is doing its job so, yeah exactly yeah that and also when i see people that i've recorded with hanging out and talking or collaborating with each other that also is very satisfying so yeah there's there are a lot of reasons that film twitter is a very uh, addictive little community it's uh, it's, it's uh, and it's, it's always expanding and growing and changing and you know we've all been doing this shit for years now and it's interesting just how uh, you know, our lives and our careers and various platforms have changed and grown, but it does make me a little sad that we're losing you to uh, Europe, it sounds like for at least for a couple of years. So we'll have to do some YouTube live streams
streams. We'll have oh, to do yeah. some some Skype sessions. And every once in a while, I feel like you should just plan like once every couple of months to come back to New York, do a couple of podcasts, short films, whatever. Just like crank out a lot of media and a lot of boozing, et cetera. Go to a Kevin Geeks out, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of just give, give us some some Bill Scurry deep dives well, from time I'm, to time. Right. We're, we plan on coming back on the regular in December's, of course, because we do Christmas here with our families. And also in the middle of the summer, we're going to be here in June's, uh, July's, I think, for at least a, two weeks or so at a time. Just become a baller and just be uh, have a have an apartment in both on both in both continents. <laughs> it could be. So, I mean, we're going to stay here for a little while. I mean, when we are in town. But what I'm doing now, and again, the American public, everyone, the tens of thousands of listeners who are listening, are know that I right now am putting my foot down. I'm claiming December 2020. I'm coming back to do Villeneuve's Dune. I have that has to be mine. I well, declare the right of prima nocte when it comes to Dune. That's totally fair. I mean. <laughs> It's totally fair. It is. I'm owed it. Yeah, I can make promises for something that's 16 months from now. Sure, whatever. I don't, I don't have any plans. <laughs> right, no one else has put their foot down, but that's got to be my thing because I'm all over that. Well, I think what we should do in the lead up, obviously do some live streams about the trade. Like as, as the information starts yeah. coming out, it is sometimes fun just to debate, discuss, and get excited over a movie as the information gets released. So I feel like that's a topic that we can do multiple conversations of in, in the lead up to the film. Because obviously we'll start getting little chunks of information in the in the months to come. Yeah, not only that, but I mean this show in various forms between the live stream and then the big, the big sit down that we did with the four or five of us, you've actually devoted quite a few hours to doing in many different forms and, and i feel so, like we've barely scratched all the surface. There's, there's so much richness there of is so much detail more. and text to be chewed on that i feel like you could talk about you could do i mean there, there are channels on youtube devoted exclusively just to talking about dune and they've got like hundreds of thousands of subscribers that's and, true yeah and they're talking, they're, dune, all yeah. they do is talk about Dune. um yeah and but i don't know how i mean is there another movie that this show all the james hancock branded material has covered in as much as dune in particular i think we've done a lot of covering we've of done dune. a lot a lot of carpenters come up a few times, right. but and a lot of Wells has come up a few times. But it's one of those things where, yeah, certain directors definitely and Bergman's come up quite a few times. So yeah, so certain topics are, and anytime you talk about Mar any Marvel movie, you can talk about all the Marvel movies, etc. But you don't repeat yourself, though. Is what yeah, I'm but, saying. but Dune, I feel, but Dune, the topic of Dune deserves it. So yeah, I'm, I'm all in. I think, but they're going to keep making movies. This is a strange place to be in where they're you got a giant feature coming in, like this is a real make or break. If they're going to give it the it and the it too type treatment, it's like this. There's a lot hanging. It ain't going to make as much money as it. No, it's there's not. no way. It, I just can't see. Even it. if they do it perfectly, I know it's going to be. I think a niche film. I know. <laughs> this is the thing. It's got so much money going into it, and the ridiculous and the thing is, gonna be like we put three hundred million into this. It's a, fuck <laughs> you. This is going to be like. The Blade Runner 2049, which I loved, and it was a great little thing that was made only for me and you and anybody who wanted to... I mean, it had everything done that I think was great. And, you know, I think for the most part, we kind of agreed with it. And it and it, fell, it fell on its face. You know, and it's like, it was made... Pu per it was made perfectly and beautifully. And well, then make those movies, but don't spend $200 million on them. Spend 20 Like, reduce the scale and scope. But I, I, not every film deserves or needs the in-game scale it's why movies like Terminator were successful because they made them for like $12 million and things like that. Granted, that was much less, much more than back then. Up, oh, are we? Oh, it's 523 and we actually have to go get steak with Mr. Cotto and right. uh, Mr. 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 Penn. So any final words on any of these films before I start rambling about, uh, you know, 
Anything? <laughs> your, your boilerplate end copy. Yeah. I think these are all great. I'm not saying that everybody should... Everybody... Maybe this isn't for everybody just to go through all three movies, but there's something really interesting here, and to see the same material adapted over and over again, this is not the only thing they've made many different versions of in different yeah. eras. Little Women coming at us. Yeah, I mean, that's the, some things are evergreen that you just keep... You know, they made a bunch of Ben-Hur's. They did all that shit. Um, yeah, a bunch it, of Robin Hoods. I mean... A bunch of Robin Hoods. And like you always take the temperature of the era, of the epoch, when you see these yeah, movies. Yeah, a bunch of Draculas. So that, that's it. You're right. That's beautiful. And it's like, and those are more famous than this. This is a very specific corner, but this shows you essentially where people's morality is and what the psychological temperature is in the day and age. In which yeah, they made. reflect the era in which they're made. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, popular, uh, uh, you know, attitudes towards people and and filmmaking techniques and all these things. That's why Attitude this shows today's, <laughs> which obviously was better by the eighties. <laughs> much better. This is where you grew up. But this is like if you saw a movie on HBO. This is what. This is the amount of toplessness that. Was was appropriate for 11 year old bill absolutely yeah it's appropriate for 11 year old bill and like well, how, 40, how old are you 44 44 year old bill it'll always be appropriate it's well gorgeous. we hope you all enjoyed this episode check out these flicks where can people find you on social media and your podcast etc and your uh, youtube channel i'm on twitter at william scurry i'm always there my uh my podcast is i don't get it uh pod, I, the i don't get the get off my lawn cast uh we are on twitter at at noah and bill show i'm on youtube at youtube.com slash am caesar that's where the by the time this airs all 10 episodes of american caesar salad my essay series will be out and um yeah, every yeah. time i see your videos it makes me want to up my game because I, I watch yours i'm like they have good sound and like good editing and like a flow it's like mine are very like quick and disposable yeah, yours well, feel like proper video essays so I I'm, always, like, I'm always getting a little fresh bit of inspiration I when I watch I your videos I get so much enjoyment in the fact that you're so much more prolific and I, I I can't necessarily do what you're doing because there's a sense of staying current and topical and that's why I love the YouTube channel there's something there, there that has a part of um, that's nutrition in my diet that I don't get from anywhere else and then also I think you do it responsibly too I think you're really hitting YouTube in a safe sanitary way where everyone gets respect and dignity and you make well, a point on my podcast I just spend hours talking about my asshole but on YouTube I keep, I keep it clean <laughs> it's totally clean yeah so I'm, I'm in all those places look for me there guys beautiful look for Bill in my asshole but yeah we hope you've enjoyed this podcast you can find me on Twitter at Colbrax my YouTube channel Geeking with James Hancock and yeah we just hope you enjoyed the show coming up we actually well, I got a couple episodes planned for September but I will. Uh, we we got to go eat steak and drink scotch, so it's time to go. So, as always, more importantly, so on and so forth, onwards, onwards and, and upwards. upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>